0: With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.
1: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit
0: VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm your co-host, Chris Mookie Harrington, joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Thurston Howard. Brandon, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you? (laughs) You know, our WrestleNomics viewers... And listeners did vote, and they did say that Brandon Howard Thurston was the 60% winner of I, the most natural name, and that is not what I called you. But uh, I, I saw that you did some
1: uh, some rogue research there. But, but uh,
0: you know, you you're always collecting Google trends. I
1: figure Twitter polls are as good as Google trends in my book. Yeah. Well, they they got it right. 60% of the people got it right. That is my my actual name. It's not. I think I think why you want to say that is because Gilligan's Island thing, like Thurston Howell the Third. So people want to say Thurston in the middle and then say Howard after that.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Why have you like Coconut Jones has a kind of a, a Gilligan's Island-esque gimmick? Do you uh, ever consider a Gilligan's Island gimmick? You're the farmer
1: Thurston, right? Well, that's my Twitter handle as a wrestler. Be, that's basically because I've been training people, though, like Farmer Burns. But that is—I never considered that you could, I could be in a tag team with Copernic Jones, and we could be—I don't know—we'd have to come up with some Gilligan's Island-themed name. I love it. It's a great idea. How's your week, bed, Brandon? Oh, it's been fine. My the last couple weeks, we, we do this bi-weekly. Um, I don't know. It's, it's been fine. I think I, I think I wrestled since we talked last. I had I think one match at IWF in Brockport, New York, which is okay. But but how have you been? Uh, it's
0: been rough, actually. Yeah? Yeah, it's been bad. Oh. yeah, my uh, my my whole improv business uh, imploded this week. What? After five and a half years, yeah. It Imploded? The uh, it imploded. The uh, the owner of the facility that uh, we have been using for five and a half years sent us a termination notice. What? I was given my forty uh, five day cancellation. Wow. And my contract, and so uh, I'm in a a quandary, if you will, on what to do next because uh, running a business. Uh, is not always that much fun. And dealing with uh, uh, creative, interesting people is uh, a headache. And so, um, as much as... You no, know, the shows are fun, but you know all the administration and the financial and dealing with the IRS and everything else that you have to do in your life, it can be kind of a burden after a while. So, um, my partner and I are considering just taking a, taking a, a hiatus after this. Oh. So. so, you have to find a new venue? We would have to find a new venue. And, and you know, after... I've been doing improv for 17 years, so it's uh, it's something I definitely love and something that I'm really close with, but at the same time, I have some other, you know, I can go work for other people and do things. It's kind of like running your own wrestling fed versus going to work for somebody else. Okay. You're, you're probably going to work less, but at the same time, you're probably going to have a lot less headaches. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, so that was a disappointing transaction. Well, have you uh, ever considered
1: booking Jeff Hawkins? I heard he does improv. Maybe if you looked for him, that would turn the business around.
0: You know, Jeff and I met up at an improv show oh, really? uh,
1: for the first time. Yeah, yeah.
0: He came to town to perform, and oh. I came out to see him. And we were introduced by the uh, the fantastic Jill Bernard. And uh, so we connected up. And so then ever since then, I've seen Jeff two or three times since then okay. uh, at other other things. So, cool. yeah, we do our improv in uh, general. And, and uh, I'm actually going to be performing at the same theater he was performing at in a couple months. So it, it's just disappointing because it's like, mm-hmm. you know. Every time you start over, it's tough to start over. So, you know, maybe I'll be doing more WrestleNomics radios uh, because I'm going to have uh, my
1: Saturdays free again. Or maybe so you could, could start, you could start an independent wrestling promotion.
0: I've I've considered it when yeah. I first moved here ten years ago. I thought about it, and now uh, I, I after the experience of running an improv theater, which in some ways is a lot easier to market to your friends, family, and coworkers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if the I'm interested in getting in with with uh, larger carnies, but you know how it is. Well, there, um, there isn't a Super indie in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, so you, I think that, uh, that market's open. I don't know. Eric Cannon is always running stuff,
0: and there's always, like, first wrestling at First Ave, and yeah, it's, you know, but there'll be a couple of pay-per-views here in a couple months, so, uh, yeah. not a couple, there'll be a pay-per-view here in a couple months. So but I'm but, but none, of those, none of those people in the area are, are professors of WrestleNomics like you are. Yes, well, as as a professor Russell Lumix, if you stay tuned to the end of the podcast here, you can hear about my new the other endeavor. I was literally launching it the same day, and then I got the improv news, and so I felt kind of kind of conflicted, let's say, mm. uh, by trying to do one thing and then kind of having something else break. But I'd rather talk about Russell right now. We're two weeks away from WWE releasing their Q2 results. Uh, this is this is considered a big event in the the Howard Thurston household.
1: Yes. I, it's a day that I often, it's like a holiday, as I've said. It's, it's a day where you, you can, you know, there's liberal leave being taken at work. I may or may not show up for work that day. We'll see. I may, I may be sitting uh, in my kitchen slash dining room uh, listening to George Berrios live. That's an important George day.
0: Berrios, Michelle Wilson, and Vince McMahon. That's right. All three have been promised in the press release. Um, Q2 results, what are we going to learn? about WWE that we don't already know or that is going to meaningfully
1: uh, require us to write an article about? Well, first of all, we're going to get an, an idea of what the range is of the the WrestleMania, or the WrestleMania attendance uh, for... Why do you stats. say a range? Why don't we get the exact number? Because they will not tell us the exact number, because uh, we'll, we'll deduce the number from the KPIs, which is this document that they put out that's got a, a number of stats on it, and we'll get I don't know, without getting into the, the math of it all, we'll, get, we'll, we'll take the numbers that they give us, which are quarterly numbers with and without WrestleMania factored in. And because we have that data, we, we, I'm able to put it in a, an Excel spreadsheet and get in an idea within a few thousand of what the actual range for actual paid attendance for WrestleMania was. And I've, I've done this for every, or we've done this for every WrestleMania going back to 2008, I think. Yeah, and so
0: it'll be a lot of our tenth year of this. Uh, the, the biggest thing is they do lots of rounding, and so if you say you do five thousand with WrestleMania and forty nine hundred without WrestleMania, you can do some math and figure out then that, that means WrestleMania is worth approximately this. But since they're doing a rounding of to the nearest whatever it is hundred or yeah, hundred or so, yeah. because of the number of events they're having, that gives you a a margin of error of usually five to seven thousand people. Which sounds like a lot, but that's just you know that's the fact because they're doing such a large rounding where it could be anywhere from, you know forty nine, forty nine and rounding down to forty nine hundred all the way down to forty eight fifty and rounding up to forty nine hundred. So, 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 be, for, so
1: for last year's WrestleMania, which is the, you know the WrestleMania thirty two with a one hundred one thousand, you know, one hundred one seven hundred and sixty three, um, we, we deduce a range of seventy three thousand seven hundred eleven to 85,880, and the median between that is 79,800, and that's about uh, on par with the number that I got from the Arlington Police Department, which was 80,000-something, so to give me an idea and, what the actual paid attendance was.
0: Yeah, and, and the other part of that being that this is paid attendance. So uh, as Bruce Pritchard would tell you, uh, it, it doesn't count every person that's in the building. It doesn't count necessarily the uh, the hot dog vendors and the wrestlers' managers and their family that was comped. But it's a pretty close number to the number of people that are actually showing up there. And at most, you know, maybe there's 5,000 or 8,000 comp tickets that are floating out there. But it's pretty hard to get up to 100K uh for that year, at least, and uh, for this year, it's going to be a much more reasonable number, and and then next year is New Orleans, and uh, I'm
1: I'm looking forward to going. Are you going to be there? Maybe we'll see. I, I I went to Orlando with like two weeks notice this past year. Um, the the Orlando attendance was announced at seventy five thousand, so I would expect a number like I don't know at least ten thousand lower than that. Well, I feel
0: like you and I can only criticize it if we
1: were there live to see it with our own eyes. Mm. To, uh, you know,
0: we can take some, some pictures and start counting. Yeah. Well, I was, out, the I was
1: outside the stadium. Does that count? I didn't actually oh. get inside. If I told you this story? I didn't actually get inside the stadium. She went to WrestleMania without actually attending WrestleMania? As it turned out, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I, I thought I was going to get a free ticket, um, through, through someone who's on the show. And, uh, I got there, I went to the box office, and they gave me tickets, and I was like, all right, I got my tickets. You know, so I, I, got, I went right from the airport to the stadium, and it was really hot out, because it's Orlando, and it's April. And I w- went right to the box office and, and told them my name, and they handed me, handed me an envelope. had two tickets inside, so I was like, all right, I'm good to go. And uh, as I'm walking away from the box office, I look at the tickets, and the name on the tickets isn't my name, but a similar name. And uh, so, like, I'm starting to think, well, maybe they made a mistake here. I don't know. But it's kind of too late to go back. So I tried to get in with those tickets, and they did not let me in. Um, I think because those tickets probably had been claimed again by the real person, probably after I claimed them. And so I was st- stuck outside the stadium. And then, uh, s- someone tried to help me out and, and get the situ- situation fixed, but it, it, it didn't. So I just went back to... Uh, I had a friend who was staying at a hotel there, so I just watched it, uh, watched WrestleMania from a from a hotel room, which was fine. And I still, uh, I still wrote an article about uh, about WrestleMania and about kind of what was going on outside and doing some imagery there. But yeah, I did not. I went to Orlando and I did not get in, but I, I I flew down there basically for free, so I, I wasn't I wasn't upset about it at all. Actually, <laughs> I can't believe that that Hornswoggle did that to you. That yeah. is terrible. Yeah, that's terrible. Hornswoggle.
0: I went to Atlanta. I went to Miami, and I went to uh, San uh, San Francisco to the uh, the Levi Stadium one. So I've done three. Okay. This will be number four. So it'll be fun. Um, other things that they're going to talk about at this Q two meeting, um, I'll be curious if they plug the um, the French TV deal they just did with Group A B. Yeah. Um, I got some. I had some really fun kind of conversation with somebody all about uh, what exactly happens with French wrestling and the prevalence on, on European TV. Because it's interesting because there's kind of different feeds that are going on simultaneously, where, from what I understand, there's kind of the French-Canadian feed, which has, like, the Rugeots on it, yeah. and that's coming back. But then there's also the, like, Group AB feed with their announcers that are in French. And you so you kind of have these, like, almost competing teams of French announcers, and one of them is, like, a, a really kid-friendly, absurd, over-the-top Kind of uh, uh, set of announcers, and the other one is like really old school pro wrestling announcing wow. so it, it sounds like a real real uh bizarre thing, and when you think about it, France has probably you know behind germany uh, it, it's, it's one of the most populous countries in Europe, but it probably has one of the least penetrations per capita of a, you know, a a very developed nation uh, for the WWE Network because you have to really be a pretty hardcore fan to be interested in it at this point, and uh, it's just, it seems like a marketplace that always they under, under, under index in, and they could be doing a lot more for
1: if they could get their act together. Is it that French people just have better taste than the rest of the world? I don't think so. I mean, they
0: were saying that, you know, during the European boom a few years ago, France was enormous. Like, the the amount of people that they were putting in in those mid-2000s, which was, you know, actually a godsend for WWE at the time because they weren't doing that great in the U.S. And then shortly after that, there was the oversight hearings and, you know, all this other stuff going on. So it was really good that International got hot during that time for them. But, um, We we always
1: hear that that Germany is such a strong market for them. And do we have any idea why? Is it... I mean, it, it sounds like it's... Stronger for them than it than it would be, I don't know, to the proportion of their population.
0: I think I think
1: it is a great example
0: of something where it, it seems to work. <laughs> you know, I don't know whether it's because of the the old CWA tradition and and you know all that the kind of Austrian. You know, wrestling scene, I don't know if it's because, you know, Cage Match is in Germany, and if you read their website, they talk about their strict German stereotypes of record-keeping and their interest in that, Um, if there's, you know, latent aggression that we're just not understanding. or I I would actually probably peg it to um, which countries had good distribution of professional wrestling in the mid-'90s. And so I think you know, like WCW was able to get into Germany in a bigger way in the the 90s than a lot of other countries. You know,
1: they even held a couple kind of pseudo pay per view events in Germany. Like one of them was called like Millennium or something. I mean, maybe France just doesn't have as much of a legacy of pro wrestling like Germany does. Well, I mean, obviously France France has a huge wrestling a a, a history
0: of wrestling and and you know, catches catch can and and even the um uh was it uh. Henri de Gaulle or whatever, who just went in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. And, you know, there, there's been some really famous European wrestlers coming from France. But I, I think things, you know, we'd have to get one of these uh, European wrestling experts on here to talk. I always feel bad when it's me and you talking about two guys from uh, upstate New York talking about European. And, and trying to explain European Sky Sports
1: like we're going to do in a minute.
0: Yeah. But, uh... You know, when we when we start doing some more weekly shows here now that uh, uh, Mookie's been canned, uh, we can we can bring on the Will Coolings of the world and, and talk UK wrestling and bring on the uh, Solani Valanis, whose name I just butchered uh, of the world talk French wrestling and whatnot. But yeah, we'll learn that. We'll learn what is a uh, WWE Network subs as of the thirtieth, and um, we can play all the games of trying to see if we can coordinate that with any other metrics that we have and to see if we can ever find a good epoxy for how can we tell WWE subs going up and down. We'll see what the TV ratings that they claim are and how they're going to spin it in terms of, you know, they, they gave an interview, Triple H did, to the Wall Street Journal where he was saying, oh, ratings are great. You know, the April 27, 2017 ratings were better than the April 2016 ratings. Ratings are doing tremendous.
1: So it'll be interesting to see uh, exactly how they, they spin that. Yeah. Do you have a um, have a prediction or any idea? I haven't given this any thought at all until just now. But have you given have, have you have any idea like what kind of what what their, their subs are going to be for the W network as of June 30? Because I'm trying to think of what they've done in previous years in this quarter. Um, where the it, it's usually about the same as WrestleMania, or or it goes down just because you know because WrestleMania is, has already passed, and now the people who are only interested in WrestleMania have canceled. So I guess I I would guess that it's going to be slightly down from. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It, it should. It, it's always a weird thing because the WrestleMania,
0: a lot of times, people are getting that for free. And so, you know, April is essentially a free month, and then May is really when they're going up. And then June, you're starting to go down, but you've already got a big peak from May. Yeah. So and the right us average
1: as well. Yeah.
0: yeah, sometimes it's actually higher than where it was on 331. Um, so it, it will be interesting. I'm always, of course, really interested in the churn. Are they going to still have the 300,000, 400,000? You know, I'm curious whether or not they're going to make a reference to the fact that, you know, they had this um, implied consumer data breach. I I don't know whether to call it an actual breach because this was one of those breaches which was found by a researcher and then basically told the company and then told everybody. So I don't know whether anyone actually had their information breached as much as someone pointed out the fact that they were able to find this data and they found um, three million accounts uh, basically the mailing address the demographic information and the age information and probably some other you know internal metrics that they have um but there wasn't credit cards or anything of that nature in there and when people were like what is this what does this mean it's probably the people who signed up for ww network and you can fill out some demographic stuff on your profile
1: yeah
0: and you know we know that there is you know, there was well over five million WWE app downloads back in the day. Maybe eight million, I think, is where they got up to. So I'm thinking it's more having to do with the network than it does with the the, the app. And it was probably data that they gave to the consumer analytics group to work on to you know do some more micro targeting. But um, it's not a good sign for WWE, and I I would be you know I would hope that you know again one of these uh, uh, analysts or investors would kind of grill them on it and say don't you think that this has a negative effect on your company when you when you don't seem to be protecting data privacy and, you know, you're trying to break into all these European markets and they're super big on data privacy and whatnot. So it'll be interesting to see if there, there's any kind of a, a discussion. And then, as you always talk about, AVOD, which is what uh, advertising ad- ad- supported, supported video on demand, yeah. Yeah, and so it's kind of like a euphemism for like YouTube-type views, right? Anything that you see a banner
1: ad running before after underneath? Right, anything YouTube, and I think that should include Facebook, too. When when I looked at how the Samoa Joe and Brock Lesnar angle was doing, there were millions of views on YouTube, and then I think uh, like 5 million views after a week or two uh, on on YouTube, and then like 2 or 3 million on, on Facebook, just for that clip. So... So they call it AVO. It's not just YouTube views. I, I think that should include Facebook. Or if, or if it doesn't, it, sh- it should going forward. Because I think that's one thing that's going to happen in the future is Facebook video is going to become more and more prevalent. And I think Facebook's going to, according to what some inside information I got from some podcasts I listened to, I, I think Facebook's going to Try to really make a play in videos. It's kind of, we already know, but maybe they're going to come out with like a Face a Facebook video app, or they're really going to direct their users in the future, probably the near future, to using video to maybe become I don't know, maybe become sort of a competition for YouTube, which might be good for indies, but who knows how that'll play out.
0: But, yeah. yeah, that's true. That that's that's a very optimistic view of the uh, world yeah. here. You know, like to me, that I always seems provide that. Like You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that seems like the the move to digital video forms of information, and, and someone like me, I'm a very analog person. I like to read it. Um, I've actually gotten into using Audible to stream the news, okay. and they do, like, a read the headlines thing, so I can do that while I'm driving, I you and uh, that, yeah. I like that a lot so more. You, so, you it.
1: listen to written articles while you're driving? I do.
0: I do. That's how analog I am. Wow. I, I record them to a cassette tape, and then I transfer them over to LPs. Nice. Yeah. um. Let's let's quickly touch on this Triple H article. Yeah. Uh, he talked to the Wall Street Journal and he said forty percent of the viewers for WWE were women. Um I was aghast at his rounding because I was like, no, one third of women, thirty-three to thirty-five percent of viewers are. But um Close. But Dave Dave immediately disagreed with me and said, Well look at the latest RAW, it was over forty. So I, I will give it to to Triple H on that one. The April twenty seventeen versus April twenty sixteen ratings when he said uh, that that they're higher. I think you're cherry picking pretty hardcore there. Well, it's so because I'm he's not saying.
1: because he's he's looking at because they they factored in SmackDown and Raw together, and SmackDown in 2016 was still on Thursdays and was still not live and still had the same roster. And then if you go forward to April 2017, okay, now the the brand split is in effect, and now it's it's not just the same little guys on a B show. It's a separate show with separate talent, and 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 exactly. and, and, so, and the SmackDown Live. Uh, ratings are higher than they were the year before that, so that's what's going on there. Um, you're not going to see the same year-over-year difference when you compare 2017 to 2018, though.
0: And then um, he had this quote. Any day of the week, I can go through our ratings numbers, and the women will have the highest-rated
1: segments of the night across the board. Yeah. Did that surprise you when you read that? Yeah, but I don't think that the women are doing better than maybe the, the Brock Lesnar segments, which aren't every week, obviously. But we, we don't really know, because all we get is, when it comes to Raw, we just get from Showbiz Daily, which comes from, I, I assume it comes from Niel- Nielsen, we get each hour of Raw, but then SmackDown is just all one one data point. We don't get SmackDown broken up into it, into its multiple hours. But there, there was an article that PW Torch put out uh, back in July last year, uh, this is the episode where Sasha Banks and, and Charlotte were having, I think, one of their many title matches. This is, this is one where where Sasha Banks wins the title. This is July 25th, 2016, and PW Torch put out this minute-by-minute minute listing of rate of the of how the viewership did throughout the show or throughout the hour. And the peak of the the show was for the finish of the Sasha Banks and, and uh, Charlotte match. So there's at least that we have that one, and uh, I don't know how, and, and how else they're doing. I don't think. I don't believe that the women are tanking the
0: ratings. I would believe that since they've done a refocus on things, um, they're probably doing decently. And I think just like any other, you know, thing I could say, like, are the tag teams the most popular thing? Are the, you know, is the single the heavyweight title the most popular
1: thing? It's always a function of what characters are involved. And, and there was um, a while so there where they were putting women at the top of the hour, which gives you the impression that... I mean, the, the top of the hour is a, is a good slot for... for for viewership to tick up, right? And they were putting yeah, like it, women at the top of the hour a lot, which makes you think, okay, they must believe that they're going to do well here. Exactly. Like, when I, when I,
0: years ago, when I did my quarter-hour rating summary, where I went through several years of data, basically what I d- had to do it on was the raters, the, the viewership changes by quarter-hour. When did it go up and when did it go down? And the challenge with that is, of course, people that they like are going to get into certain slots or people that they think they're going to keep. Yeah. And so you get a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, you, you put certain matches in certain places. And so it's really only the people that, you know, you see half a million or quarter million people tuning in or tuning out where you can say, wow, this probably means something. Because these small 50,000 changes, they're just, that just is what happens throughout the time. Um, and so it was just certain people like Brock Lesnar, like The Rock, like Curtis Axel, who uh, shot it up. Uh, of course, the Curtis Axel was when he was getting his, like, mini push with Triple H, um, and Paul Heyman was with him. So I, I think there's a lot more to do with that than there was with
1: the Axeman,
0: but uh, you never know.
1: Yeah. So in quarter hours, we don't get any more. I know Dave used to publish them weekly, but for whatever reason, a few years ago, he, he stopped publishing them or probably stopped getting them. Yes, yeah.
0: I, I think he's he's publicly admitted that the person who gave it to him no longer gave it to him, and that's why. And then he'd say, I could probably get him if I asked, and then he would just trail off. So that You know, and it, I I don't blame him because, you know, whenever you have people that give you information, you, you're at their whim, and you don't want to be in a position where you're saying, hey, can you do this for me, and do this for me, and do this for me, and hey, you used to do this, do this more? Because yeah. I'd been in that position as someone who's published, you know, the schedule of WWE and then for the next year, I get tweets and emails and comments where someone says, when is it coming back to Pensacola, Florida?
1: Are you still getting those right now?
0: I still get them, yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. And, and so it's, it's the sort of thing where either A, I'll be like, just read the schedule, or B, be like, I don't have any other information you don't have, yeah. or C, I explain exactly where I got the information right in this filing here, so if you want to call it fake news, go ahead and call it fake news, but <laughs> I'm pretty clear on what it comes from. But you know how it is.
1: As as far Uh, as quarter hours, I think one thing that was brought up uh, in the last few days is quarter hours are are subject to a lot of biases, sort of like you you talked about, in that the the top of the hour is going to have a bias uh, where the the rating is going to increase, and other segments are going to have biases where the rating is going to decrease, all all other things equal. And I think the the thing to look at now is to look at YouTube views. Now, I know YouTube views don't generate that much money or hardly any money at all, but I think it's still a useful metric to look at, okay, well, which segments and which stars are connecting and which ones aren't, and that's something that uh, probably I need to look at and and sit down and, and do a bunch of manual data entry for a while and try to get some answers there. And big data, yeah, that's what I would say
0: is, or or I should say, moderate-sized data,
1: because we're not getting
0: big data, we're doing manual collection. But um, one week does not make a trend, and so it's like you you need to find lots of periods of time. And then, of course, there's just periods of time when WWE has competition that seems to inherently affect them more than other periods of time. So during, you know, the NBA playoffs, you wonder sometimes, are all characters on the show equally influenced, or are there some, you know, characters that are more kid-friendly that maybe are less influenced, and then some that are more, you know, I always wonder, is it the same demographics that are the fans of the Samoa Joes, Brock Lesnar's, as they are of the women's angles, as they are of, say, the R-Truth Gold Gold Dust angle?
1: Yeah, that's that's um, a good point. You know, I, I do feel
0: like different demographics are necessarily going to be pulled differently. Like we've seen, for instance, women viewers uh, tuning in heavily during wedding angles on WWE, and so by the same token, you know, something like the dance reality shows might be more able to influence that demographic than say uh, NBA playoffs. I'm I'm speculating here, but I'm just thinking out loud that there's always these semi these these miniature moves going on within. Uh, there too, but I, I think over time you're definitely going to see these characters are the ones that are, are doing well, and I think it's going to disappoint a lot of WWE fans. But um, uh, I think Roman Reigns is going to fare just fine when you do this calculus. Yes, uh, I think someone probably. like Samoa Joe, you know, it's almost like um, I thought before that sometimes you have to almost put like uh, uh, numbers after someone and be like, here's Samoa Joe during his first going for a title versus here's Samoa Joe one year later because I feel like some characters come out really hot out of the gate and they're really interesting and then within a year they're kind of bland and so like the difference between a Seth Rollins when he's coming back from his injury and a
1: Seth Rollins today seems like worlds apart. Right you you look at it like maybe one year at a time just thinking about how this data would be collected if if I were to sit down and go through WWE's YouTube page and collect all, all this view you know viewership data um, the further back you go, here's the bias, is that the further back you go, the more time each clip has had to accumulate views, which maybe in the in the minor ones doesn't mean that much because people will just basically forget about them. But the more popular ones, I would think, would, would continue to show up in on the sidebar and then so forth. So the more and more time it goes on, the more and more time that these views have to uh, to accumulate views. Like, the ideal thing would be to do, to collect the data, like, 24 hours after the the video is, is uploaded, and then just so they've all got the same amount of time to collect views, and it's kind of what Sean Rossap is doing for Flightful.com, and that he he collects the data at a, at a certain time during the day. I think it's usually the same time, and then he posts it. Um, unfortunately, I don't know of anybody who's been doing that uh, going back years and years, so that we have a, a bigger data set. But but there's something that could be done there. Yeah. You
0: know. Absolutely, and and. It's you know it's it's the whole reason that you're secretly on the payroll for WWE after all these years is that you you've been you know being given this data and you're just using this podcast for your propaganda purposes.
1: Right. If is paying me, they they must be paying me through Fightful or something. I, I thought you were the one that was trying to get a job with with WWE. <laughs> you know I, like i just said i i
0: uh, think they just tanked my improv career so oh, that's right. you never know what's next well they they're, um, they're they're trying to free you up so you have less of a reason not to go we talked a little bit about sky sports uh, last 2 weeks ago and uh, we just wanted to clarify exactly what was happening it's, it's kind of interesting cuz in some ways you know it's always like look to japan for the future of us entertainment and maybe in europe we're almost seeing like look to europe for what the future of what the U.S. cable system might look a little bit like with Sky here, where they're they're putting together this, like, package of different channels where they put on different programming on the different sports channels. And so on Sky Sports Action and Sky Sports Arena, you'll be the home of the Rugby Union, uh, Rugby Super League, ETB Tennis, PDC Darts, World Championship Boxing, NFL, GAA, Netball, and WWE. Uh, so I'm, finally, you can get your netball, netball and w netball. What, I'm I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. I'm I'm totally uh, a a big expert on netball. Yeah. Um, I'm not. It's of course a ball sport played by two teams of <laughs> seven players.
1: Yeah. I it just, was uh, a
0: yeah, yeah developed uh, in early versions
1: of basketball. Yeah. And uh, you might enjoy watching Malawi yeah. versus uh, uh Fiji. Yeah. And Did yeah. you know? it the the Commonwealth began, began in England in the nineteen or the eighteen nineties. Did you know that? I, I was aware of that, yes, yeah, yeah. of course, so uh you'll be able
0: to to basically get different packages. You can get either one channel, two channels or three channels for between twenty three and thirty four u s dollars and so uh it it might be good for w w e in the sense that you know they're getting slated on this channel that has you know some decent uh, other things that are on it, but uh, at on the same time, it's also a big warning sign that, you know, maybe the bubble's bursting uh, for some of these developed countries around how they're going to be running their media markets in the future when it comes to renegotiations in 2019.
1: Yeah. And so for those that don't know this, Sky Sports is kind of like an HBO or Showtime. It's a premium channel that you get on top of whatever uh, cable or satellite uh, package you have already, right? And, and we've seen a lot of articles this year
0: about how WWE ratings have really been tanking in the UK. And uh, like I've always said, I'd be curious to see what the value per viewer was on some of these different deals. But I would not be surprised if the value per viewer in the world uh, might actually be the highest in the U.K. right now in terms of what they're paying versus how many people they're getting. Um, So I can understand their desire maybe to restructure. At the same time, you know, compared to some of the enormous sports fees that are out there for, you know, Formula One or or, uh, uh, soccer... It it's just it pales in comparison versus what, what WWE is being paid. So uh, it's all over the place. Uh, let's talk programming here. It uh, looks like the network is just not pulling in the numbers that they promised, and uh, their main advertiser, WWE, on the WWE network, uh, was not happy with the ratings of Talking Smack.
1: What's happening? I don't know. They're, they're canceled. So Talking Smack, is the weekly series, is canceled, and they're just going to move to being uh, a post-show for pay-per-views. Um, and it, it looks like yesterday, uh, which which is what day is today? We're, we're recording on Saturday, so on Friday, I guess Renee Young and Daniel Bryan logged on to Twitter or the internet or whatever and found out, not not from WV directly, but from other reports online that it's not no longer going to be a weekly series. Um, I guess Unfiltered, which is an, another Renee Young show, was canceled as well. I'm not sure if that's old news or not, but I know I you know there's some talk about how. Well, is because SmackDown, uh, Talking Smack, airs right after it airs right after Two O Five Live, actually. And, and I've, when I've watched it, it seems like it's taped. It seems like they're recording it right after SmackDown and then airing it like a half an hour later, while you know. So I think they're taping it kind of while Two O Five Live is is going on. So the, question, the questions I've heard is like, well, maybe Two O Five Live is going to move to a half hour program, and maybe they're going to do their UK weekly series on the other half of that, or maybe a women's series on the other half of that, but. I don't know. I, I kind of lean towards it's going to stay 205 Live, even though we've also heard that 205 Live isn't performing as well as they would like.
0: And and that's always the funny one because it's like you, you have two completely different streams of consciousness coming out about 205 Live. You have the corporate stream of consciousness where every time it's mentioned on a on a conference call, on an investor's call, they say how proud they are, how great it's going. How, Super serving. Yeah. yeah, how how successful it's been. And then on the people that actually look at, you know, television rankings. And and there's arguments, of course, about, you know, again, the timing of when you look at WWE Network most popular shows and whether or not that influences the ability to to say what's the most popular thing. But just the the low engagement that some of that has had. I I do think there's a lot going on with this. Number one, Talking Raw, or whatever the Raw show is, Raw Talk, I think, um, only happens after pay-per-views, and they said Talking Smack is going to happen after pay-per-views. So they're going to keep it alive as a post-pay-per-view show, which makes sense to me. Number two, maybe this is a sign about, you know, that future of what the engagement they're asking for from a general manager like a, a Daniel Bryan or a Shane McMahon, in the sense that, you know, both of them have been busier in recent months, and so perhaps it's it's less of their ability to kind of be there to be at these shows. I also think you're Well, they were putting out JBL on there while, while Daniel Bryan was out, while they were having the baby. Sure, sure, but I just mean, like, that's my point, is that you're not even offering up off the, the GMs the way you originally said you were going to, so you've already kind of changed some of the premise. I, I do think you're burning out this production crew and these uh, people, because, you know, these guys especially the SmackDown guys, they've been on tour. This is the very end of the tour for them, you know, a Tuesday night after the show, and you're still asking them to stick around and do interviews and do this. On the flip side, it was a great way for people to get their characters over, and it was clearly less scripted. And, you know, I I, I don't think anyone would disagree that it it revitalized The Miz in his ability to go off and really make a a character and a name for himself um, in the past, you know, couple years here when he really, you know, cut a really passionate, great promo on Talking Smack. We've seen Kevin Owens do incredible work there uh, during the short time he's been there, and it's been fun, you know, it's been more fun. I do also wonder about Renee Young, because didn't she just join the Total Divas cast? On the the previous season she's been on, yeah. Oh, okay, so I, yeah, you're right, so then it's more than one season, um, because I I have watched select episodes of Total Divas, I will admit. Because I was going to say maybe that was part of it. It's just like as her stock grows and her character grows, you know, you're you're asking her to do more and more and more. And, and sometimes that means she's less available. But uh, I, I'm just for consistency's sake, I'm not surprised to see it get pushed for the sake of the fact that for the production crew, it's really the end of the week uh, for, you know, pushing all the stuff. I'm not surprised to see it be killed for the fact that, uh, like you say, it opens up the programming for a little bit for other choices. Yeah, but honestly, if I was to do a UK show or a women's show or something else, I would not put it on Tuesday night that late. You know, it should go to another night of the week. Um, You're killing your audience by, you know, doing a three-hour Raw, followed by, please tune in the network for our latest special programming, then a two-hour Smackdown, followed by half an hour of of, uh, 205 Live, followed by more programming. Uh, and then NXT on Wednesdays, and it's like, well, shouldn't you start, you know, kind of spreading things out a little bit more so that you're not just asking people to
1: stay up later and later and later every night? Yeah. But well, again, I feel like they that's told me. They feel like it's, well, it's video on demand. You can watch it anytime you want. So you can watch it on Thursday if you want or whatever.
0: Yeah, but I mean, which is true, but at the same time, they know that a lot of this consumption, live, 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 you, you know, know, as much as they say that, a lot of the consumption is still being
1: done very live, very real yeah. time. And then they want all the social media engagement live while it's in first run too.
0: It'll be interesting to see how the women's tournament kind of influences, because obviously they're doing these kind of binge drops where they're going to put out, you know, what is it, four hours at a time or something, or four episodes at a time. Uh, for a couple of weeks and then lead to the finale, and you're going to have to watch a lot of programming to catch up quickly on like kind of that once a week drop that they did with the cursorweight tournament, and so it'll be an interesting experiment for them to see kind of if that's the the way for them to um, you know move in the future here based on the analytics that they get. Uh, I I do have to believe that they're more and more responding to the information that they have or the cost concerns that they have. So when I first heard Talking Smack was being canceled, my immediate thought was. Well, you have a stagnant service that is not necessarily growing uh, viewership right now uh, in terms of subscribers. So uh, at a certain point, you might want to start cutting costs and peripheral programming that is not adding uh, uh, incremental views might be the first thing to go. The challenge with that, of course, is that I think this was one of the best character development programming that they had because it gave people the most opportunity to actually shine and be interesting.
1: Yeah, I thought it was when I watched it. I would always tweet like, Man, "When is Lance Russell going to host Talking Smack?" Because it just felt like it felt like an old, an old time, you know, an old studio uh, territory wrestling program where people just they were just here's a Baron Corbin and he's just going to going to talk for a while. It it didn't it had such a different feel from the normal WWE philosophy of you know, everything's got to be a skit or a promo in a ring and all that. Yeah,
0: and I like that. I thought it was I thought it was the one time, you know, it's kind of like some of these YouTube clips where occasionally you could see somebody and be like, that's an engaging character I actually enjoy. Like like I was telling you about that like Heath Slater Dodgeball League. It was like this right. is fun.
1: This is interesting. It's where they can actually talk like human beings.
0: Or like, you know, like all the old uh Daniel Bryan versus the Bear skits on the JBL show and that sort of stuff. So, right. you know. Um so that's that's going on when talking smack there.
1: Yeah. Uh, and the May Young Classic is going to air live. Well, the the final is going to air live on September twelfth. And the final is already decided. We will not spoil that for you here, though. Uh, on Wrestling yeah,
0: on I haven't. Radio. I've actually I've read no spoilers, so um. I'm I'm really excited. Did, did you have you? How many of the women wrestlers have you
1: seen live, live? Uh, from the May Young Classic? Uh, let's see here. I'm looking at a listing of them. I've been on a show or two with Candice LeRae, but I don't know that I've ever seen any of them live. Oh, see, so, yeah, I used to see uh, Mercedes Mendez.
0: Uh, okay, I'm I'm butchering her name. Martinez. Mercedes, Mercedes, Mercedes Martinez. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going off memory here. I used to see her live, and I remember seeing her on a show, an N.E.W. show one time, and I was like, she is the best wrestler <laughs> in this entire building. A- right N.E.W. is now. in
1: Northeast Wrestling.
0: As in, uh, uh, Columbus Fed. Oh, as, as in next ago.
1: era wrestling. Yeah, next era wrestling. It was mean, a very she, long time ago. So she was booked at NEW in Rochester.
0: Yeah, to, wow. like, lose. I and it that. was terrible. And I was like, y- this is the best wrestler you have. And you did, like, a five minute schmaz with her. Yeah. It was terrible. Who did you wrestle? Do you know? Do you remember? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, probably. Oh, oh, goodness. Are the locals. No, 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 no. The woman from PA he used to always come up. Um, Oh, we used to be live journal friends. I can't think of her name. Sassy Stephanie? (laughs) No, no, I'll think of it later. I'll think of it later. A larger woman. Um, She was a hard hitter who uh, would, she would wrestle guys sometimes. I don't know, one of of the people Tiger always liked to bring in, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so she was really good. And so I was really happy to see her uh, get into the tournament just because she was someone who I was always like, in another era she would have been. A, a very strong talent for the company, and it's you know ten years went by, <laughs> and unfortunately, I think she's coming in at like thirty five or thirty seven or something. So that's 30, always thirty six. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that that was that's my own little uh, two cents on women's wrestling. The one time you'll hear me go off on it to be like, ah, I wish this person would have had a bigger shot. Anyhow, uh, Missy Missy uh, something Missy Sampson. Oh yeah, okay. Was. Yeah, I remember. Yep. Yeah. See, it took me a second, there but I got there. Uh, You know, someone asked me the other day about payroll in WWE, and I went back to that Forbes article where they estimated everyone's pay, and, you know, the total amount of money they thought that WWE was spending was probably around $50 million. And you can always get really complex with that kind of calculation because obviously with all the revenue streams WWE has, there's probably ways that people are getting paid beyond just what we would consider normal royalties uh, when it comes to the movies or comes to... uh, you know, other other kind of streams or things that they're offered or, or perks that they have, you know, first-class tickets, stuff like that. But it's about $50 million. And as the company's revenue has gone up by, you know, $100 million in the last couple of years here, I don't think that number's moved very much. In fact, if anything, it might even be trending down a little bit from the pre-pay-per-view era because, of course, they don't have to pay pay-per-view buys anymore. And the network, especially in year one, was not even a profitable venture for them. Uh, but then I was going back to these old WCW memos from 2000. So this is WCW when they were, you know, sinking ship. Yeah. And their budget for WCW payroll at that day was 40 to $43 million. They were at $43 million and they were over budget is basically
1: what the memo said. And I've just put that into the inflation calculator and $43 million in 2000 is $62 million in 2017.
0: Yeah so it's it just kind of was striking to me to be like you know in 2000 when there was two companies and obviously there had to be some competitiveness with the pay uh because really there was, you know, I should say there's really three companies ECW was still alive at the time and then you still had you know Mexico you still had New Japan you still had other options in well. all Japan yeah uh yeah all Japan was about to split Yeah I was going to say Noah is just around the corner there um you know they that WCW was spending more, and again, WCW historically overspent, so I, I shouldn't be that shocked by it all. Um, and but, this but That is like
1: $13 million more adjusted for inflation than W is paying now.
0: Probably, and then the only thing I'm never clear on is that $50 million, does that include all the developmental costs?
1: Because, in theory,
0: that $43 million I was talking about did include the developmental talent at PowerPoint or Power Play Plant, and we know that because there was a lot of the memo saying we cut these power plant talent, we gave this guy more money who works in the power plant, so forth. Um, so there might be some money that WWE has basically invested in their developmental, uh, uh, you know, in their NXT center that may or may not be part of that 50 million, and that would be the only kind of caveat to my 50 million there. But how did you get to 50 million again? You know, that was the number that Forbes came up with, and okay. that was the number that Dave uh, more or less affirmed
1: mm-hmm. at
0: being it's less than 10% of revenue. Now, re- 10% of revenue would be closer to $70 million now, but uh, a couple years ago it was $50 million, and my understanding is it has not gone up very much since then. And so it's just the discussion of, like, you know, when you get to the major sports leagues, it's more like 40 or 50% of revenue rather than 10%. Because there was all the discussions going on about what does UFC pay out, how much are they giving their guys as a percentage of their, you know, several billion dollar valuation, yeah. and, and so forth. And, of course, all the discussion about Conor McGregor's pay and uh, whether or not would you go back to a, a you know, a UFC fighting uh, after making a
1: giant payday with Floyd Mayweather. So, yeah. uh, In a few episodes, we were talking about Okada's pay, which was something like $2.2 which which may or may not include... Costs of a campaign to promote promote him, but the 2.2 million com- came out to something that like, was 18 percent of New Japan's revenue for a year. It would seem that way, yeah, for
0: sure. And so it, it's you know kind of that big question of like, well, that seems way too high for one guy to spend. But you know. Um Japanese uh, record-keeping on revenue streams for professional wrestling isn't always 100% percent non k so yeah. who knows? But, but I would
1: expect Okada and Tanahashi to be making a much higher percentage of, of their company's revenue than John Cena or Roman Reigns just because they're more, I don't know how to say this, they're, they're more essential. I mean, like if, if Okada or Tanahashi leave New Japan, New Japan's in a, in a lot of trouble. Uh, more so than if Roman Reigns or John Cena leave WWE, I guess.
0: Reigns, for sure. Cena, Cena's tough because, you know, he is left as the franchise player. And um, I think if you lost-lost John Cena, it would be a bigger blow worldwide than losing Okada because at least they, they're building up some other stuff to fight with Okada versus, yeah, yeah I don't know. It's like saying, what what happens if The Rock never does wrestling again? It's, well, it's not a big blow. But at the same time, if The Rock does wrestling again, it's a huge thing. So, I don't know. It's a double-edged sword. It's it's a moot Um, point. Anyway, John C. is
1: never leaving WWE. He loves WWE with
0: all his heart. With all his heart and all his soul. Um, Speaking of inflation, uh, I pulled some numbers, which I was pretty proud of, uh, by going back to the Secretary of State of Ohio. Um, looking at old filings. And for whatever reason, one of the filings they require was called an F7 form, fee form, uh, for foreign companies. And foreign just means you're not incorporated in the state that you're filing in. And so uh, they asked for this Titan Sports Inc. file, and it basically had essentially the amount of money they made in Ohio, the amount of money they made as a book value, and then the amount of uh, total business transacted in the last year for Titan Sports, and so we had a dollar amount for how much money they were making in 1987 all the way through 1996, except for 1992, which is uh, the, the image was destroyed, never copied or lost, essentially, is what the Secretary of State told me, but uh, it was really interesting because you can kind of see this pattern here of, you know, revenue going up year over year from 87 to uh, 1990 and then kind of dipping back down and then going back up again. So uh, if I can read my numbers correctly here, it says they did $76 million uh, in the year ending April 87. They did $96 million in the year ending 88. They did $122 million in the year ending 89. They did $147 million in the year ending April 1990. And they did one hundred and forty four million in 91. So essentially they flattened from 91 to 90, but they were still at the $140 million mark. We don't have 92. 93, it drops $20 million down to $122 million. 94, which, of course, uh, for those people that I remember, is really when we got into those doldrums of uh, professional wrestling in North America. And we, we see it dropping down to $89 million. In 95, we see it dropping down to about $89 million again. In 96, we see it dropping down to $82 million. And that's around the time where WWF was in such dire straits that they started
1: to take out loans. Those numbers are uh, exactly the same for 94 and 95. Okay, so yeah. But, it, what, it was, is that is that correct then? Because what, what are the odds that those numbers are going to be exactly the same? That probably screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's probably very yeah. similar regardless, but, but yeah.
0: Yes, I, I screwed up. I will. I will pull the actual number right now for right. for Brandon Howardston. All right. Uh, by going to my special Google Drive and going, so we'll go in here to the folder called Professional Wrestling Legal Research and Preservation Group.
1: Yours very, very much more organized than mine are. Mine are just like some random uh, Excel spreadsheets in in my Documents folder that I have to whenever I want to pull something back up. I'm like, oh, what did I name that
0: file? I don't know. And so then we go to the government uh, folder. We go to the Secretary of State folder. We go to the Ohio folder. Uh, and then we go down to the one that's labeled uh, 1989 Ohio underscore WWF. We uh, pull that up. We see that Titan Sports, Inc., a corporation organized under the law of the state of Delaware with its principal office in Ohio, located in Stanford, Connecticut. <laughs> um, and we go to page two. What? Oh, there it is. Okay, it says eighty-nine. They did one hundred and twenty-two million one hundred and twenty-seven thousand. We're we're concerned with ninety-four and ninety-five. And this is the year. Well, oh, that was eighty-nine. Oh, well, then that's not at all what you asked me, is it? <laughs>
1: Ninety. Which one? Ninety-five or ninety-six? Ninety-four and ninety-five are the same. So I think one of them might be different. is
0: wrong. Yeah. All right. For ninety five, their total book value was and, eighty two million two hundred forty three thousand. And I'm sorry, their, their total business transacted was eighty two million. So eighty two and ninety five. Yeah. Okay. Which is down or up or what is
1: that from? That, that, that's, that's down from what you got in the chart. It's, it's eighty nine two hundred thirty seven. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so they went from 89 in, in the year ending 94 to 82 in 95, and I think they stayed at 82 in 96 as well. Yeah, and and that's when you know business had dropped by so much that they began to uh, run into financial. You know, I think they were running a, a loss for the year, and they were starting to having to go out, get loans, which isn't death toll for a company like that necessarily, um, because you can always structure down, right? You can always just run less shows, pay less people. Um, make smaller events, you know. But obviously, when you accelerate in that direction, then that's when things get tough. And as we know, that was right on the the cusp of the boom period. So you can imagine a a scenario where they're not getting, you know, that new talent or that disgruntled talent that turned out to be huge. Um, You know, 95, I think, was when I found rookies for WWF. Uh, people, you know, coming into the company for the first year, they they struck gold because you have like Austin, you have Mankind, you have all these guys that are are coming. You have The Rock not long after that, who are coming in the Pike Triple uh, H. and that yeah. Triple H exactly. And so it's like that was the year that everything, you know, they got all these great guys. But even like a guy like a Steve Austin, you know, his first year he kind of languished, and so it it says a lot about you know you you can't always know in advance who's going to explode. But at the same time, you know, you do read about, you know, the Brock Lesnar's and the Bill Goldbergs of the world. There was a little bit of a bidding war going on to sign these guys because there was more than one company that had them on their radar. Was, was WCW actually interested in getting Brock Lesnar? You know? Um, I, I think so. I, I believe that they were, I mean, the fact that, that WWF had to put out an enormous contract. I think it was a quarter million dollars for developmental
1: for Brock. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Says a lot about how difficult it was to recruit him.
1: USC may have been interested as well.
0: Yes, they definitely were uh, because I I read articles of him um, in when he was still in college talking about it. And Brad Reinigans—I'm probably butchering his name. You know, the New Japan Reinigans. Yeah, I think he ended up being a huge um, influence on Brock because he's the guy that basically got him into New Japan after WWF and was someone who was around him in Minnesota at that time. So, you know, I think he kind of had other people that knew uh, knew about him. And even going back to high school, you can find articles in the Pioneer Press and, and in South Dakota and whatnot talking about how he looks like a WWF wrestler. You know, he, he was one of these guys that everyone knew about from the beginning because
1: he had such an incredible look. Yeah. And he won, I think, at least one NCAA championship, so he's... He was yeah. a legit athlete, a legit top athlete in his sport. Um,
0: so it's also fun because you can also pull up WCW's. Um, you know, what, what did they publish? And it says in 89, they were doing like $22 million versus WWF's $122
1: million. Yeah. That, that year 89, uh, it's got all that all the Ric Flair and Rick Steamboat matches, the Ric Flair and Terry Funk and all that. They were making a fraction of what WF was at the time. Although it was 89, is 89, WF is still pretty hot. Yeah. Um, But you're probably going to say, like, you go into 90, 91, the difference is still enormous.
0: Yeah, because 90, it's 32 million versus 147. 91, it's 35 versus 144. What is worth saying, though, is, and this is something that Eric Bischoff will talk about, um, previous to basically uh, uh, Nitro starting, WCW really wasn't getting paid television fees for their programming. And um, I believe even their home video sales, I don't know whether those were going towards video or whether they were going to turn or home video. Okay. Um, and so one of the big changes he made is basically he said, I need the company to pay me a revenue stream for my programming. And that had a big influence on, on basically changing um, how WCW looked as a profitable entity. Yeah. Uh, and of course, a lot of that came along with when Hulk Hogan's getting signed and it's really important to not only shell out more money, but then make it look more
1: profitable. Was WF and, getting getting rights fees in 89, 90, 91? Maybe, maybe from USA network for prime time?
0: Um, they got a very they got a modicum of money uh from USA. They obviously made pay per view money. They're actually spending quite a lot of money on syndication at the time, but once they ran ran everyone else out of kind of syndication, I believe they started to get some money from people that wanted to syndicate their shows. Um but you know, for a while there, you know, when you'd watch wrestling it would say the following is a paid programming. Uh oh, wow, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember watching that uh, where, where it would show superstars, but it would say it was a, a paid programming by T- Titan Sports. And that, of course, was was the strategy is, you know, once you pay for the programming that you formally made television stations pay for or got for free, hey, of course they want to put on WWF's product. Um, but, you know, they made their money on the live gates, and WWF, much more than WCW, figured out how to run 600, 800 shows a year, you know. In a time when WCW was wanting only a fraction of that, and and only in a fraction of the country compared to WWF, plus WWF was getting international television, and of course their pay per view uh, was much more widely distributed and uh, uh, sold at a, a at a higher price. I think they got a higher cut than you know probably WCW did because they were one of the first ones to get in the business. Yeah. So w, and WWF was such a big licensing juggernaut compared to w, WCW yeah the, the so, man in my
1: refrigerator wants to interject I think one of the I keep t- hearing him, yeah, yeah the, the, the one of the big takeaways I get from this is um, we're looking at a chart of course which I should tweet out um, 2001 they made WE made 617 million dollars and that was their biggest year up to that point and that, and that was their biggest year until 2015 where they this is adjusted for inflation as well uh, so 6, 617 adjusted for inflation it was somewhere around 450. Uh, not adjusted for inflation in 2001, but the, the the big takeaway I get from this is that WD is not as popular as it was in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it's just such a more efficient, efficiently run business with more revenue streams that it's able to be uh, I, don't, I don't know about profitable, but it's able to take in more money than it was in those previous years. You go back to 1987. We think of 1987 as one of the really good years of the 80s wrestling boom. And adjusted for inflation, you know, they're they're at about 200 and Seventy-three. Although that doesn't make any sense on this chart, does it? But anyway, the the, the point is, on, in nineteen eighty-seven, the amount of revenue coming in, even adjusted for inflation, is a fraction of what it is today. Just despite yeah, maybe oh, a sure, perception, yeah. these these are the Hogan years. This is the year that you know Hogan and, and Andre go to the, the Silverdome, brother, and they draw ninety-three thousand. and He slams you know the, the five hundred pound Andre and he kills him.
0: The the flip of it, of course, is like you say, profitability. So number one, uh. 2000, 2001, WWF was wildly profitable. I mean, profitable enough to subsidize XFL and, uh, you know, Casino and uh, all these other ventures that were not going right. Uh, and that says a lot because it, as a percentage of revenue, they were way more profitable. And even as absolute revenue, this year they'll probably break, the, you know, they're trying to get the $100 million EBITDA mark. And I think that will be comparable to what they were generating on less revenue back in the 2000s, uh, especially if you looked at just the wrestling portfolio. The flip of it being, of course, they they did just take out a massive loan. So I, I will you know, fault them a little bit on that in the sense that if they hadn't just taken out a huge, huge, huge loan, they would probably be hitting their new record profitability mark. But now I would call it a, a coin flip. But they're they're structured so much better, and it's guaranteed money. You know, back in the 80s through the 90s, that none of that money was really guaranteed. Short of you know, they weren't do, even doing home video in in house really. Um, so it, it was a real challenge for them to always be producing and and have that those revenue streams guaranteed. And of course, you know, you're, you're paying out a lot to the talent, and it was very um, very hard to structure those long term deals. That they later then went into. On the flip side, a lot of it was domestic. Now they have an international presence. You know, almost a quarter of their revenue is coming internationally. And so, in a sense, you would almost probably be more fair to look at WWF domestic growth versus the 80s, because since the majority of the money was being made in
1: North America at the time, uh, would probably be more like to like. So you're predicting because of those that, that credit that they offered, right? That you, you,
0: oh, I you can explain I'm, I'm, that
1: more more than I could. You're, you're predicting that it, they may or may not hit a hundred no, million I, I think, for the year.
0: I, no, I think on on book they will be they'll hit 100 million. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying they have debts now and and they have this large debt that they never had before and so they're also taking in a bunch of of money and holding it as cash. And so this is the difference between, you know, business transacted and book value when it comes to to how WWF is being valued. And I'm not an accountant enough to explain it away 100%, but I'm just trying to say that it's they, they've now taken on a big debt, and you know UFC, $4 billion, enormous debt. And so I, I just think there's always that challenge between a business can be worth a lot, but at the same time, they can borrow a lot, and that's where there's a big difference. WWF or WWE is in a different boat because they've decided to borrow a lot to do some business initiatives that we don't know about. And we don't really understand what it is they want to do beyond just pay their dividend and not have a cash crunch. And maybe it gives them a nice leverage against uh, the TV rights negotiations where essentially they don't have to worry right now about – essentially they're barring against their TV rights negotiations in 2020 because the way that debt is being paid off on is the stock that they have and the value of their stock in the future. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of them to make sure that they can bridge the gap now before these negotiations and have some money to structure the deals that they want to structure and – you know, what does that deal look like? Who knows? But, you know, would I have guessed they were going to get in the movie business 10 years ago? No. Uh, they're in the streaming business now. And sometimes to run an initiative like that, you're going to need a lot of revenue to do it with. And the one thing that they're not always great at is being cash
1: rich. Yeah. So and You may not be an accountant, but I, I actually had a one-year certificate from my local community college in, in accounting. But I, I couldn't explain it any better than you could either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh i feel like we've we've uh kind of explored wwe to the max
1: here let's talk new japan okay. um did you I watch was, did you watch the new japan g1 special
0: well i knew what was going to happen already i predicted it so yeah, why would wrong. i need to you were wrong well i'm i'm just thinking maybe people watch a different feed than i did oh. i watched the feed where jim ross was able to correctly identify the briscoe brothers oh. and uh, a were lot you, of other good stuff happened were you playing a wrestling simulator I perhaps was, in fact, on uh, Tecmo World Wrestling, yes. Yeah.
1: TEW is, is the big one now. They should sponsor yeah. us. There's probably financial figures in there, right? There was in the extreme. Do you ever play... E- I, I played EWR, which is what? Extreme Warfare Revenge. Have you ever played that?
0: I have not yet. I've always wanted to, though. I've never played the T.E.W.,
1: but i played the, the previous version E.W.R. And there are, like, finances... I think there's, like, a button that says finances, and you see how much revenue you're generating and whatnot.
0: Well, like, and my buddy Oliver Kopp was involved with right. developing one of these. T.N.M. These. Have you ever played T.N.M.? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's all over this stuff. I, I remember reading all about it, and I think I downloaded one of them once, and I've heard in the past that, like, people have taken Excel files or something that, like, I've put together... For uh-huh. wrestlers and and things to use as uh-huh. a part of their simulation for their own feds, probably. That in fact, that I sense. had a guy, I had a guy contact me who wanted to do ELO ratings because I did the whole ocelot thing on my website where I explained how you do ELO rankings, which is it's a chess algorithm for how you can rank chess players essentially, and I applied it to pro wrestling, so you uh-huh. could basically come up with scores for people to say, okay, the ultimate warrior beats Jim Powers in a singles match. What does that mean? Versus. uh uh, CM Punk beats The Undertaker, what does that mean? And ways of basically giving points and scores so you can kind of see who is the most important people in the Fed at a time. And he wanted to take his imaginary wrestling federation, I assume from one of these companies, and put it through an ELO simulator. And then he was asking me for spreadsheets to do that.
1: So that's what that ELO is that you talk about sometimes. I figured it was just like some, you know, really, really uh, high tech math uh, metric or something. But it's a chess thing. Well, it is a a math metric. It's basically a
0: way of saying, okay, we take two people. uh, You're of different handicaps from each other. If one of you beats the other, how do we value the two of you so that I could rank you? Hmm. And it's a a math formula. It was developed by a physics professor, I think, from Wisconsin. um, And there's a thousand variations of it. Um, People love to use it for soccer and for football and for other sports. Uh, I've seen it apply to lots of times, and uh, it's a way of ranking, you know, to just kind of say what's the strength of this and the strength of that. Uh, For wrestling, obviously, being a work sport, um, it's interesting to apply it, and so I had to come up with lots of things about, you know, winning at WrestleMania is worth more than winning on a house show. A title change is worth more than a non-title change. A tag match, how do you value that? And what was interesting is then what you get questions like, Roddy Piper disappears for two years and then comes back is he at the same ELO than he was before? So-and-so jumps ship from WCW and comes over to WWF. Is he at the same ELO? And so you had to kind of come up with factors to to figure out how to value people for that. So it's it's a fun mental exercise, and it, it's a way you can prove that Ultimate Warrior was one of the most dominant people ever, or that um, uh, Demolition was a really dominant tag team. and Or, sorry, Legion of Doom was a, a really dominant yeah. tag team. Probably throughout their, their career, they, they didn't job to anybody. But. Exactly, and that's and that's largely you know that can be the flaw of it is that you're going to get false positives where you're like oh my goodness uh, Ludwig Borga or uh, uh, Sylvester Turkay is is the man because look at their their record here but and it's just going to be a microcosm but it, it's a it's a fun way and I thought about you know even taking you know 2017 WWE and just saying you know where are we now I remember I did that a year ago and I found Baron Corbin was riding really high and it was, at the time, I, I was surprised by that because I wasn't paying close enough attention to realize that how, what a push he was getting. And baby so faces it, win almost to me, every match on house shows. Yeah, that's the one thing is where I, I, I usually discount house shows a lot. You, you end up with something I call a K-value, which is basically the multiplier you give to the point change, and so for WrestleMania, a K-value might be 32, 64, versus a house show, it might be 2 or 1. You know, maybe I'll say Madison Square Garden's worth twice as much as a, a, a show in Madison, Wisconsin.
1: AJ Styles is happy about that. <laughs> so, he, so, he just uh, won the US so, yeah. at, at MSG. But, but, anyway, you, 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 but anyway, so there's... I, 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 had, I had to get sling to watch the New Japan special. Um, yeah, how did, how did the sign-up for that go? It was fine. Um, I, I let my, so it was a free trial for seven days, so I didn't pay anything. But then, of course, I I did exactly what these businesses want me to do, and I just forgot about it after seven days and it rolled over, and it and it charged me twenty bucks. Um, and then I canceled it. So now I guess for the next month I could watch Sling. I haven't. I don't think I've used it again. I used it to watch to rewatch the um, when they re, you know when they aired the, the second day on Access. I just put it on. Um, but yeah, I thought it was very good. I thought the so I watched both of them live. Um, the second day was on New Japan World, um, and I thought, you know, especially towards the end of the of the second day, all these things that, that Kenny Omega was saying, um, and then the reaction that that Daniel Bryan had to uh, to what he said on, on Twitter, I thought that was very interesting. It made me prone to speculate that when when Daniel Bryan's contract is up, this guy's going to New Japan, um, because Daniel Bryan retweeted some things that he retweeted a gif of of, of Omega at the press conference saying that. Um, you know, some of us live for money and some of us live for fame, but some of us live to make a difference. And I think that kind of reflects the values that, that Daniel Bryan has and that he's not really so concerned about the money or the fame. He's concerned about making wrestling better. And, and we can argue about how, how sincere Omega is about that. But I think I think people like Kenny Omega and Zack Sabre Jr. and Daniel Bryan are kind of aligned in that way and that they're, they, they're probably willing to forego WWE. I mean, like Zack Sabre Jr. probably turned down a WWE contract offer following the Cruiseway Classic. Um,
0: oh, he, he absolutely did. No, yeah. There's no question about that.
1: He and Koda Abushi were certainly offered contracts
0: and turned it down. Yeah. I think I, I will still go back to, I think, a married man with a child in his mid-30s <laughs> yeah. given two options of one of a financial career where he will be relatively set and his wife will continue to have a strong relationship with the company versus an independent wrestler who is fighting a uphill battle mentally in the sense that I think Omega always felt like he was underappreciated and when he got all his ducks in a row and realized how important he could be and, and how he could be valued that way, it, it really, you know, motivated him. I, I just I think they're at different places in their life. And so I think it's really fun to imagine Daniel Bryan coming back? I think it's really fun to imagine Steve Austin coming back. But I think there's also always these, you know, counter pushes, these these other forces on these people that kind of hold them back a little bit. I don't know if I would have guessed Cody would walk away, and I don't know if I would have guessed Cody would be as successful as he is. And so I do think there is that. Um, it helps a lot to see someone who, in my mind, maybe was not as underappreciated as Cody likes to make him out himself out to be, yeah, uh, and still be very successful. Like I, I think it's funny where they talk about you know Omega, Omega was in developmental, and they didn't think anything of him, and, and they let him go. I think that's very true. I think Cody, on the other hand, had a lot handed to him, and he worked very hard for it, but he's always been a very good-looking guy. He's always been a guy who wanted to be an actor. He's always been a guy who was the son of Dusty Rhodes and got a big push, um, and so I, I think it's hard to argue a sob story on Cody Rhodes.
1: Um, but of course, everybody thinks they're worth more than they yeah. really are. Well, like I think I think the common have. denominator between Kenny Omega and and Cody Rhodes is that they're especially when you get to the main roster, and this, this company doesn't, and and, the, and even in developmental at the time that Kenny Omega was in W developmental, you know, this is a company that doesn't really help you get the most value out of yourself. It doesn't really help you get over. Or they they may have a few people that they pick, which I would say currently are probably Roman Reigns, Braun Strowman. Baron Corbin and people like that. There are certain people that probably Vince McMahon picks that he he wants to really get over and give an opportunity to, and and for most everybody else, your ability to get over and to become a star and to add value to yourself is really out of reach, despite the uh, grab the brass ring narrative that they push. So so oh, yeah. once, once 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 Cody leaves, it's at least with with a certain sector of fans who are you know very attuned to what's going on online. Um, he becomes a, a, a really more interest, a way more interesting wrestling star, and he says he's making I'm, just as much money, or not, if not more, than he was in WWE. I believe
0: it. When when you're Stardust in the cosmic whatever wasteland, <laughs> right? Uh, versus being Cody Rhodes, absolutely. Do I think he was making more than when he was in um, not Legacy? I guess it was maybe not. You know, I think that was probably a better time. Though, again, being so new to the business, he probably didn't have that kind of a legacy contract. Right. You know, when you're 10 years in, you get a better, you know, see, seeing um, Chavo Guerrero and uh, Big Daddy V's contracts year over year mm-hmm. tells you a lot about how your value kind of goes up and kind of goes down as the company keeps you on. Because at a certain inflection point, basically they pay you a little bit less, but they give you some security. Yeah, and so it's it's interesting with that, but uh, I I'm, I think it's great that New Japan made a big splash. I think it's um, yeah, I agree with Kenny Omega's comments that the building that they ran was probably too small and probably not formatted right for what they were trying to do. Yeah. I can I, understand, I understand it. it was all the fear, pretty
1: much all floor seating too, which made, made it hard to see in you know when you're in the back row.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I understand the fear. Like, you know, as big as people think of Ring of Honor, they, Ring of Honor barely runs shows this big ever. And it's tough to run shows this big mm-hmm. and to find those mid-sized venues that are going to be just right for this anymore. I mean, in the 80s, this all existed. But in the last couple years here, this kind of entertainment um, facilities, just it, that whole sports arena business is just so different now than it used to be. And um, it, it's it's I think it's great that they were able to make a big splash. You know they're they're saying they want to come back to the U.S. It, it's tough to make an impact in this marketplace beyond um, the incremental dents that they can make. You know it's I think Omega said he was impressed with how many people knew what it was and knew you know how this all worked. And I hopefully it will have a huge splash on them for New Japan World subscriptions. I think as good as the Tokyo Dome is. I wouldn't be surprised if this drove more new Japan World subscriptions than even the Tokyo Dome did. From from the U.S. Yeah, 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 from a domestic standpoint. Just because I think having U.S. announcing with a U.S.-based promotion with you know a a focus that would be I am focusing on
1: you U.S. market, it does make a difference. Yeah, and I think when I looked
0: at Google Trends
1: just for the U.S. for New Japan, they were I think the, the show was at least as big, if not bigger than. Than the Google trend data for you know surrounding this past uh, January 4th um, I'm trying to pull it up right now and uh, I'm looking at worldwide but yeah go go ahead and talk and I'll, I'll have it in a minute but <laughs> well, do, it, do it we know it's just
0: an interesting question so,
1: yeah do, do we know when Daniel Bryan's yeah, contract I mean, actually like expires is it sometime in 2018?
0: I know you're guessing 2018. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, you know, in line with what we think. I wouldn't be surprised to see more like a Cesaro or something where, you know, they, they kind of cash in and say, I'm done, and I want to go be on the indies again and, and make a lot of money. Because I could see someone like him being a huge star and making a ton, um, more than even, say, a, uh, uh, a Cassius Ohno, uh Chris Hero type who went on the indies, made a lot of good matches, but I don't know if he made a ton and ton of money. And again, someone who doesn't seem motivated by just being rich, 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 rich. But at the same time, I think everyone wants to be comfortable in what they're doing. And as their body breaks down and as they get older, uh, you always want a little bit of stability with it. And of course, you want appreciation. And uh, it's tough to make your own
1: appreciation. So New Japan, uh, I'm I'm sure, New Japan on the week of January 1st to January 7th, 2017, uh, New Japan interest in the United States rates at 75. And then the week surrounding the, uh, the the U.S. shows is a 100. So, like, a, it 25% more interest. Yeah, and so I,
0: I think it's great news for them in the sense that um, to develop a market, you know, going there and doing actual interviews in the U.S. marketplace makes a difference, right? You know, being able to connect with with local news organizations and put a star there, it's going to have so much more impact than saying, we're running a big show in Tokyo and it's going to be really good and you should see it. So it, it helps a lot to get that local promotion. Um, and uh, I agree, they should be coming back to the U.S. two or three times. I am worried about some of these wrestlers and the schedules that they have to keep, you know, flying back and forth and back and forth. It's, it's grueling on guys to do this. Um, and it's amazing that some of these guys, you know, tried to pull it off like the young bucks. And it also, you know, I was really, really shocked when I looked at the numbers for how many matches have people done for the first half of the year in New Japan versus in WWE, because they were surprisingly close. And I later then found 12 shows that I was missing in my WWE data, so WWE probably had a little bit of an edge. But what, you know, the number of of matches that Ibushi did and that uh, Sami Zayn did was almost equal. The difference being one of them did, you know, 50 to 60 to 70% tag matches, and yeah. one of them did 70 to 80% singles matches. Yeah. And so there's something to be said for that, and there's something to be said for the travel days, right? I'm sure the New Japan circuit is a lot more concentrated in the sense that it's probably more days in a row, but then more time off between tours right. versus the WWE circuit where you're traveling every single day, you're doing television, and you have to be in one place for a long time and all these other things that are very different. And, and, then, of course, and then your time
1: uh, off is like two days a week.
0: Yeah, it, well, yeah, two to three. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's clear that the guys, you know, you're done on if you're on SmackDown, you're done on Tuesday night, you get to go home on Wednesday, you're you're there and Saturday is when your tour starts, and then if you're on the raw tour, it's a day adjusted. You know, you start on Friday and you're off by Monday night. Mm-hmm. And then there's of course those couple guys that you know, the two oh five guys who have to kind of do both shows, but they're usually not doing a lot of the house shows. And so I think it was Tony Nese, of all people, that I found had done the most TV matches for the first half of the year, which was, you know, bizarre, but when you think about it, well, okay, he's on Raw, he's on 205 Live, and so in a sense, he has twice as many matches he can get in in a week compared to almost anybody else.
1: Right. So I guess he's, I mean, those 205 Live guys are the only ones who are essentially on two shows, right? I guess, other than people who are on, like, main event, but yeah. Or like, you know, the
0: Triple H's or something in the world who are probably traveling to both shows. Yeah, but he's not, or, okay. he's not wrestling, obviously. No, 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 not working. And then, you know, I'm sure there's some developmental guys that sometimes, um, you know, they, they put you on a tour and they'll have you go to a lot of television, sit around.
1: And at the same but, time, Tony Nese is probably not working a lot of house shows, I would guess. Is that right? Do you know? No, very few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of
0: those guys, most of the 205 Live guys are actually on the NXT tour.
1: Mm. The, and, the, and the, so the, you, the nationwide one. Uh, both. Oh, okay.
0: Both. You see them, you see them they, they kind of vary. You, like, sometimes they'll be on the nationwide tour, but the nationwide tour is not all that common, and so sometimes they are just doing the spot shows in Florida. Hmm. Um, and, and if you think about it, that makes sense, right? Because a lot of those 205 Live guys are really not much above the level of an indie guy, but they probably still have more experience than some of these true developmental people that have no you know, wrestling experience. And so they're probably not a bad fit for those kind of cards, uh, and they're cheap. Mm-hmm. They're cheap talent, I'm sure. Uh, you, you had a question, and it said, where should New Japan tour based on Google Trends? And uh, uh, I see you've changed your answer here because it, it now says New York, Chicago, L.A., well, Toronto. I didn't change answer But it originally said West so Virginia. No, no, no.
1: That's looking at county. I mean, I don't, I don't really take any take any of that seriously the the, the the county stuff when you look at it by county you get stuff like maybe all these counties in West Virginia there's disproportionate interest in New Japan um, and I, I I don't take that very seriously I take that as well these West Virginia is like a really little populated state right so there must be maybe there's you know it's skewed by that fact and I think well I also wonder if the cable provider or the internet
0: provider has a little bit to do with it because I swear a lot of times I'll look at Google and it thinks I'm in, in Illinois for some reason, mm. and I don't know if that's my work Google or my phone or what, but it, it's always convinced I'm in this other state than I really am, and so maybe West Virginia internet is more centralized, and so all the West Virginia searches are going through West Virginia, or maybe it's the other way around, that disproportionate amount are going through. I always wonder that, too, is is Google on those kind of worldwide trends, I'm sure they're getting it right by country, but are they really getting it right by state and city? Because I have seen a lot of times where it thinks I'm in, you know, a different city, state, especially when I'm on my phone,
1: than I really am. Yeah. And so if you, if you look at it by city rather than by county, the, the markets that pop up are New York, Chicago, L.A. So and, and Kadani gave an interview to Tokyo Sports where he said that New Japan is probably going to do a tour in, by March or April 2018 um, in, in the U.S. So I think those are the, the four markets they, that they'll probably go back to. Because I, I can see them doing a tour, doing like a, a four or five show tour and hitting New York, Chicago, L.A., Toronto, which, except for LA, sound, sound so my like, buddy Rich. like a Ring of Honor yeah. tour.
0: Yeah. Yeah, my buddy Rich in, in uh, San Francisco asked me, what would the New Japan-US business model look like over the next five years? And, you know, part of me is always like, well, that's the uh, the $10,000 consulting engagement that uh, New Japan is welcome to send my way. But, uh, you know, on a rough side, it's a great hypothetical question because it's a tough nut to crack and in, an, in a parallel universe this entire tour could have been a debacle
1: right? Yeah. Listen, this could this have a been $10, a $10,000 value, Kidani, are you listening? Listen to this right now. <laughs> you
0: know how many yen that is? Um, but it, it could have been a debacle. It could have you know not sold out. It could have been such a backlash against the Billy Gunn thing. Uh, you know, uh, one of their stars could have got hurt in a big way uh, and either not been able to be on the tour or got hurt during the show. And uh, the the media could have you know really just
1: lambasted them or ignored them or whatnot. But, but it, they, it they or they could really could have really offered a, a non-authentic um, New Japan experience, which I was. That's one of the things I looked for when I turned that that show on on um, the first night. Was like, all right, it looks like a New Japan ring. It's got the it's got those New Japan you know ring post guards or whatever you call. Them, instead of the the, the typical US turnbuckle pads. Like, I was concerned that maybe they're going to rent out somebody else's ring, you know, in the local LA area, and it's not going to look like a New Japan show. It's going to look like an indie show with a bunch of New Japan guys booked on it. And it wasn't. It looked like an authentic New Japan show.
0: Exactly. And it's it's like, how much comedy do you put on? How much seriousness do you put on? How long do you let the matches go? Do people know the match moves? Do they know the the environment? And it went really well. So then the question is, what do you do with that? Well, obviously... Uh, you need to have momentum. I, I, I think the once a year, you know, if you make it a big show, that's great. But I, I think the biggest problem you have right now is the fact that ROH, in my opinion, rides their coattails quite a lot.
1: Yeah. Would you agree? Yes. I I think, I don't think New Japan is ever going to run as much as Ring of Honor does in the U.S., but I, I feel like there's more value. I think that the attendances that New Japan will achieve will be higher than anything Ring of Honor achieves in the near future.
0: And at the same time, I feel like Ring of Honor is getting the uh the the positive effect of the new Japan talent on their shows and the halo of that. you know, can you imagine what Ring of Honor would be if they didn't have that new Japan talent coming in for World of worlds and whatnot?
1: right. I think they would still be doing okay, but not as well as they are like they they don't get to spike attendance twice a year, or whatever it is when they do their you know they do their uh, joint shows and in that, New Japan.
0: And that's and that's going to be such a challenge for, De- for uh, New Japan is because they, they risk essentially lowering their value by continuing to dilute it with another company's name on the banner,
1: right.
0: where you, yes, you are protecting yourself from some of the financial downside because I know I'm sure they're getting paid, you know, handsomely to do this. And of course, Ring of Honor has to deal with a lot of the logistics and the challenges of that. But at the same time, uh, Ring of Honor is getting a lot of the benefit, and New Japan, I would say, is not necessarily growing in its its perception and understanding just because they are on these Ring of Honor things. They're great from the sense that, you know, in the old days, New Japan always loved to have a developmental territory in the United States that they could throw people in and let them season, and we're seeing them do that now with some of their younger talent. But I I do think that at a certain point here, you get to a place where you have to say, is there really a value to New Japan to always let... Ring of Honor, be able to market so much of what they're doing and build off of that, or does that power dynamic need to s- s- dramatically shift?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's the tension that's going to happen as, as New Japan runs more and more shows in the, in the U.S. As, as we were talking about a, s- a second ago, I think the, the big markets that they should run are New York, Chicago, um, L.A., and Toronto, and all, except for L.A., Those, those New York, Chicago, and Toronto are big markets for... Uh, Ring of Honor and even big markets for the Ring of Honor and New Japan global wars or war of the world. So I think it's going to be interesting going forward how, how is this relationship between New Japan and Ring of Honor going to play out is, it's sort of like an infiltration in that, you know, New Japan sort of let their guys go to Ring of Honor and, oh look, they're getting really popular here and there's no risk really for us as, as New Japan in, in being a part of this. It's like, it's not as much of a risk as actually running shows there but it sort of helps their guys get over with an American audience. Um, there are a lot of other factors, too. That helps New Japan get over the American audience, but that certainly helps putting New Japan stars on a Rainwater show.
0: And I might even challenge, like, what about the Houston, Vegas, Atlanta, Miami, you know, yeah. type things of, of getting to these other places outside of the Northeast? Yeah. And the big cities that they, they have, you know, kind of overplayed in some sense. I, I do, I mean, I recognize fully that, you know, when Ring of Honor comes to Minnesota, they don't draw enormously. They draw decently, but not enormously. And part of that is because they go out to Hopkins, which, you know, is like going to Tanawanda instead of <laughs> uh, Buffalo. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. It, it is, it's not, you're not in the Twin Cities. You're in right. Hopkins. Or when,
1: when they run he, here in this area, they run Lockport, which is like yeah. 40, a 40-minute 40 drive from Buffalo proper.
0: But, yeah, but it's, and, it's, and
1: the only reason why they run Lockport is because that's a venue that in, an an independent promotion in the area has run before. It's not like they just piggybacked the venue. They didn't. They obviously didn't go and like go to Western York and like all right, let's let's take a week to search out venues. They just said oh, okay, cherry pick. Yeah,
0: that that venue they run it okay. It, exactly. And so I I do wonder sometimes about now the flip is maybe New Japan wants to say West Coast oriented because that makes the flights much cheaper and makes the uh the time spend much lower. To you know, bring the guys over to the California, to Seattle, to you know things on the coast, because then it's going to be much easier for them. Uh, I, I do wonder at a certain point, do you have to develop a U.S. based territory where you're, you know, not necessarily running periodically, but rather running a, in a continuous form and doing like an actual tour and, and like a separate to- brand. You're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah so that you have that ability to, in some ways, kind of um, keep it alive. I do think television is more and more important. I don't think access is the solution for them. Um, I think the people that get access think it's the solution for them. I think the people that don't get access, it is such a gap in order to where it is. I don't know if we're living in the era where you can have a OTT-based company that tours and lives on that. In the United States, I still think you'd need some kind of major distribution and much in the same way that TNA is handcuffed uh, by the station that they're on now, being on POP, uh, you you need to have a more major thing. And I I think that the value is the spike of the world. You know, I I really think you need to make a big blast and convince one of these big companies, an FSN, a spike is something that, that, you know, we have this innovative product. You don't have to pay all this money for WWE for one tenth the cost. You can get this incredible thing
1: and uh, all we have to do is package it up, right, and you're going to get some interest. Yeah, and I think New Japan has value, at least to me as a fan, and I'll try to explain this. Like, I think it was so much different to, to watch that show and to watch it in front of an American audience in an American city, an American venue, and to see... It. And yeah, there was Billy Gunn, and yeah, there was, you know, not good commentary from Jim Ross and, and probably Josh Barnett too. But to, to see this... a a a real sports presentation, which is not something that I've seen probably all of my adult life, such a sports presentation. And I feel like that's what a lot of hardcore fans are are really asking for and really, uh, I I think, has value to them, as opposed to everybody is so influenced by the legacy of WWE for the last 15 years. Everybody has an idea and I think a lack of creative thought, you know, challenging their perception of what pro wrestling is supposed to be, that everybody's wrestling kind of looks like WWE rather than looking like, this, this form of wrestling that's more sports-like. It's presented like a sport. It doesn't insult your intelligence. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's why New Japan has a lot more value, or it has a special value that WWE doesn't offer, that TNA doesn't offer, that not even Ring of Honor offers, because it's, it's finally the sports presentation for wrestling that I think a lot of people have been asking for, or at least that's why
0: it connects with me. I think it will connect with people, you know, I think it will connect with the Bellator fan. I think it will connect with, you know, some of the people that are watching some of this other programming that's not WWE today, that it could have great value. I think the challenge is going to be in financing, because it's not cheap to kind of put forward a such a big expansion plan, and the conservative, financial, opaque dealings that Japanese wrestling has had in the past might bite them in the ass, either in the form of getting the wrong investors in the United States interested, and, you know, you end up with a Ponzi scheme type situation, or in the form of just not being willing to expend the capital and the money that it takes to move things uh, along in some of these investment processes. I mean, we, we've seen Lucha Underground. We've seen TNA. We've seen all these companies that just pour money down a hole to make things work, and that sadly is where you sometimes have to be to expand in this kind of climate. It's very hard to expand rationally uh, if you want to make an impact, and uh, that that's going to be really challenging for them. And so, uh, you know, would Billy Corgan have been better dumping 10 million into N W A or into uh, uh, New Japan? I don't know. I doubt he did 10 million into N W A, but uh, just you know, kind of as an example, uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to see if New Japan. Can understand the streaming marketplace in the United States and find the right partnership because ultimately I still don't know whether a standalone service, uh, the way it exists today, is going to be right until it can get on the Roku of the world.
1: And it needs to be in, in an English, an, a native English format, not just a Google Translate English format. You know, that's, I think that's a huge barrier for people who are just intimidated by, "Whoa, I'm looking at Japanese text here. What is going on?"
0: And I'd be curious, you know, it, maybe one of our, our fans out there can, can reach out to us just about, you know, for years and years, anime seemed like it might take off and be the huge thing. And, of course, there's, you know, Comic-Con and things like that where there's subgenres and some niches that are huge and have enormous followings in the United States. You know, you can go to Barnes & Noble now and there's huge manga sections. But at the same time, I recognize that, you know, it's not necessarily mainstream in the same way. And while there's, you know, mainstream adaptations of every popular genre, be it One Punch Man, be it, you know, Glow Wrestling on Netflix, things get big, they get interesting, but at the same time, are they really breaking through? Are we in this sub society where things are so situated separately that it's hard to, you know, get through? And so I'd be curious if someone can talk to us about, you know, what has happened with the anime and the manga scene over the last 15 years here, and has there ever been this example of this Japanese companies that are breaking through and making it big I know there was that Japanese OTT service that even um, was was partnering with uh, WWE for that one promotion do you know what I'm talking about here say Um, say, say
1: that again
0: there was like the Japanese OTT service I say Japanese but it's a US based one but it was more like for like Japanese manga cartoons anime stuff Mm
1: -hmm. That that doesn't ring a bell
0: Oh, I just remember WWE did some promo with them. It was like Pop Crush or something like that, where then they were doing, you know, for this amount of money, you get both of these services for some period of time. Mm -hmm. And even some of the investors were bringing it up as an example of kind of an out-of-the-box WWE network promotion. That was for Japanese customers or American customers? No, it was for U.S. customers, but it's for a service that would, like, be for anime fans, is what I was trying to... It's not like Crunchyroll. Yeah, it was Crunchyroll. Oh, okay. Okay. I think it was a Crunchyroll WWE, like, cross-promotion they did. Um, and so I just mean like Crunchyroll is a good example of kind of another niche OTT service that caters to a certain group and, you know, a group that has always kind of been on the fringes of wanting to be big in the U.S. and then the question about, is it big, is it not big?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if anyone knows, I'd love to hear more about If kind you're of- an anime fan,
1: come to us. We want to talk to you.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, so,
0: um... I think we've, we've talked a lot about New Japan. We've talked a lot about WWE. Do you want to talk about ROH, or do you want to talk
1: about TNA? Uh, I don't know. Let's talk about ROH a little bit. I just, there's been rumors that Sinclair wants to sell them. And a few months ago, there was all that talk about, I think this was surrounding WWE getting the rights for some Ring of Honor footage that they, that they can put on the Kevin Owens DVD, which just came out. Um, so do you think Sinclair really wants to get rid of Ring of Honor? Well, I think think probably.
0: I think it came from there was like a a Reddit thread about Sinclair. And, of course, Sinclair has been doubling down on their kind of pro-Trump. We we create commentary and force stations to put it on. John Oliver just did a whole segment on them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, kind of we want to be the next Fox News, but uh, we're over here uh, situation. And at the same time, they're trying to do this big acquisition. So it's the split between we want to make a splash, we want to be big, and at the same time, maybe we're spending a lot of money and this might end up being a cost-cutting situation. And so this this person on Reddit, and again, it's good or bad, this is what they were saying. And they were saying, you, you know, Sinclair owns ROH Wrestling, which has all the same problems with of their news product listed above. Don't worry, they're selling it. Sinclair was trying to get into the sports broadcasting and created American Sports Network. ASN and ROH were to be part of it. It failed miserably. This is someone who claims
1: to, to have...
0: To work for them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's well-known inside the company that Sinclair is looking to get out of the wrestling business, but it's not something anyone in corporate will put on paper. After ASN failed to grow and their purchase of the Tennis Network didn't help them either, they are looking at to focus their portfolio on local and syndicated shows with the purchase of Tribune. Liquidating assets is a common thing for these big mergers, and everyone knows that they've been trying to make some money from ROH. I'm not saying that this will happen, but... I do know it's going to happen. <laughs> I'm not saying when this will happen, but I do know it's going to happen. They've been trying to sell it for some time. My old boss tells me it's in the works. Also, the ROH building in the main Sinclair building is
1: basically a closet. The, the closet. ROH office.
0: Now, um,
1: would you explain our, our why their website is in such dire straits? But.
0: Yeah, our friend who you know
1: really closely covers ROH, whose okay. name
0: you are about to pronounce now.
1: La, repeat after me: Lavi Margolin. Margolin. Yeah. But Lavi Margolin. Margolin. Mar- 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 right. Mar- Wal- yes. Lavi uh, was was
0: disputing this, saying, you know, they're really behind the times with some of the phrases they're talking here about what their OTC service was going to look like, and and so forth. And and I don't disagree that um, this does not sound like someone who works for Ring of Honor Wrestling. This sounds like a you know a Sinclair. Uh, a, a, a Sinclair employee, which could be anything from an accountant to a TV programming you know dial up guy that makes sure that the schedules go out to the right people. Or someone who doesn't even work there anymore, an old intern, or whatever it is. But I I would say, from an independent standpoint, it makes sense to me as a business (laughs) thing. Uh, On the flip side, Sinclair made a reason they decided to get in this business, and uh, I'm sure there's a thousand opinions if you ask a thousand people. And until we hear something from the people up top, there's two challenges. Number one, who wants to buy ROH? And number two, Uh, who's making the decisions right now on that level. And so uh, I I don't see ROH imploding or anything of that nature. And I never hear stories that ROH is overspending to the the capabilities that they, you know, aren't going to be profitable. But I agree on the sense that with all of Sinclair's focuses, ROH does not fit tremendously into all their decisions. And all of these niche sports OTT services, I just don't know how they're making any um, headway right now. And so um, it, it, it would I struggle to envision a scenario where Sinclair loves to keep Ring of Honor around for another five
1: years, yeah, and it but doesn't, that's, where, that's it, my opinion. And it hasn't struck, struck me as Ring of, or Sinclair is so enthusiastic about Ring of Honor. They're, you know, if, if you ever listened to one of JR's podcasts a few years ago, like they, they have you know, production issues and lighting issues, and, and Sinclair seemed reluctant to provide them with more resources to, to improve their production. Um,
0: well, like like I said with WCW, you if you have internal programming and you don't pay for that internal programming, that's a challenge because essentially you can't count that television revenue against your PNL statement. And Sinclair does Ring of Honor because it's cheap programming, right? So right. it's like until you can convince them to make up make money off of it, it's tough to push it. It's great cheap programming or free programming. I don't even know if they do get paid, but and as we know, they're competing with paid programming in terms of, you know, the Ginzu Knives and the Blenders of the World and Don West <laughs> is is the competition for Ring of Honor in some cases.
1: Right. So, so who would be potential buyers for Ring of Honor? Obviously, WWE, um, another TV network, I guess.
0: Yeah, uh, possibly. I, I see it more going the direction of, you know, when when New Japan was sold, did it, people really think that the, the holding company that ended up buying them of trading cards was going to be the one
1: that... Maybe a video game company, yeah? Maybe a video game trading card company or something like that. Maybe.
0: There's not a lot of big video game licenses out there left, and and video game production is pretty expensive. Um, I I don't even know. But I just meant more like private equity, you know, or like, you know, the Ponzi scheme I referred to earlier that New Japan might end up with. Uh, Hey, if you're New Japan, and you want to build a serious U.S.-based
1: touring company... By Ring of Honor. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Do you think, what value does would Ring of Honor have to New Japan?
0: Uh, a, you have a roster of people. So you have talent mm-hmm. that's U.S.-based. Yeah, a bunch
1: of contracts you, have, you, inherit.
0: you have a bunch of contracts. You have a library, a big tape library that you can integrate. You have all this um, North American... And that, and that library, probably a lot of it hasn't been digitized, and a lot of it has copyright music on it. Some of it, some of the older stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm just thinking in the Post Sinclair uh, library. Sure. Um, you have North American know-how, which to me, that's so big. is local knowledge know-how. Who, How do I book arenas? Where do I book arenas? Who do I contact here? How do I do ad sales? How do I do this? How do I negotiate this? What kind of lawyers do we have? What kind of contracts do we have? How do we deal with merchandising? How do we deal with royalty rights? How do we deal with injuries? How do we deal with all that stuff? You know, all that North American knowledge that they would inherit by buying an infrastructure of people that they have. Because um, it, it, it's expensive. It's time-consuming to build that kind of back-office know-how, and I recognize that it, they've whittled away their staff over years, but, I mean, that that's part of it. Um, and then part of it would be, I think, being part of the larger organization gives you a stronger arm, right? So... If New Japan and Ring of Honor aren't seen as rivals in any way, but rather it's a wing of another one, it's kind of like that Noah New Japan relationship where we saw it improve the ability of Noah to be a, a promotion, though. And when they removed it, it hurt them. And of course, then you can build up better feuds and better this and better that. So that that would be part of it. I would still say it doesn't. It's not a solution, but it's a interesting uh, cog in the wheel. Uh, I don't know whether New Japan would have an interest in that because, like you say, with the cost of of the revenue that they're generating right now, Ring of Honor would be a large investment for them, and uh, it it would be challenging to see whether or not the financing would all be there.
1: Yeah, and in the the favorability and familiarity study I did uh, in December, I think the, the New Japan brand, at least with the type of people who were surveyed, and this is like hardcore fans, um, I think New Japan brand is way stronger than the Ring of Honor brand in terms of perception. Um, probably similar in terms of familiarity, but I think oh, I would I would change it into New Japan.
0: It would be Ring of Honor's is a branch of New Japan, and you know you brand it as a New Japan thing. You know New Japan Pro Wrestling presents Ring of Honor or something but it, like that. But it's like a,
1: I don't I don't want to see I don't think a lot of fans want to see pay money to see a New Japan show that's got like five New Japan guys on it and a a bunch of guys that Ring of Honor recruited a couple years ago from the New England area. Like, that's not going to fly.
0: It isn't, but, I mean, as things begin to meld together,
1: I mean, there's people like Elgin
0: and whatnot who at one time you would have only considered to be a North American Ring Honor talent, and now you think of as a New Japan talent. Right. So, you know, it's possible for people to transform, and what I would hope... And this is, of course, the, the difference between hope, dream, and is, which is you'd hope that you would look at your two rosters and say, I need to balance things out. I need to be profitable here. I need to bring a ton of Hashi to the United States and make him live there for a year, you know. That would be a big difference maker, those kind of things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But we'll, we'll see. You know, I... I it's not like we hear impending doom stories and, and people are going to dispute it. But uh, I, I don't see Ring of Honor with Sinclair in three years. Then again, I didn't see TNA lasting 12 years or whatever it is. So it's, been, it's 2002. Is this, they just did the 15-year anniversary, right? I was just going through some of the old filings, you know, when they were fighting with, with uh, Billy Corgan and with American Express and whatnot. And it was just shocking. You know, you see these huge debts. I even found this lawsuit. So there's this guy named um, Patterson. I think it's Albert Patterson. And what he is, is he got a settlement from WWF back in the early 90s over the name Superstars. So if you ever wonder why oh, yeah. you don't see Superstars of Wrestling or Superstar Wrestling Superstars... Or, or like, sometimes
1: you watch an old... Like, if it's a, a WWE-released clip from Superstars, and, you know, they got that banner hanging over the ring that says, you know, it's got a WWF logo and it says Superstars or Superstars of Wrestling. That's actually blurred out, like it's censored. Yeah, yeah So
0: so this guy basically ended up, it's a really confusing thing, because he he basically got a a trademark for the name Superstars. Then he got an injunction or a a settlement from Titan. And as of 93, in the the one judges thing I found, it said that they paid him like $250,000. So they paid him a, a considerable sum of money, basically. And then later on, they got this injunction or this trademark basically invalidated. But this guy goes through and he sues WWF, he sues TNA, he sues everyone under the sun and uses footage from this one public access uh, wrestling show he recorded at like a county fair and got like community TV to broadcast as his reason that this trademark's in action and that they're violating it and they owe him all this money. And so at one point they went through a very long lawsuit with TNA. And uh, what's interesting is they, they of course, uh, depose a lot of different people, and one of the people they depose is Dean Broadhead. And Dean Broadhead, the, the uh, CFO, I think, of, of um, whatever TNA was, Impact Ventures or Impact Entertainment LLC, something like that is the yeah. name. Impact Ventures, I think, yeah. Uh, he, he gives some statements about the financials of TNA, and they actually get the, the deposition sealed. So that we don't have those financials, but we see in one of the responses to this lawsuit that um, the, the the plaintiff basically says TNA is uh, admittedly just a tax write-off for this Panda Energy company, and going into like some details about it, which were, which were kind of interesting, seeing kind of their perspective of how they put it. So again, it was someone else's characterization of TNA's finances. But it was the first time I'd seen a legal document where they actually admitted Panda Energy was basically using it as a tax write-off rather than, you know, I've always seen that speculated on on wrestling boards, and I was never really clear from a legal standpoint they could do that or could not do that. But um, it it was just interesting because you got the impact there. And and again, when you see the American Express bills and all the other stuff going on, it it strikes you as something to be like, I can't believe this House of Cards
1: continues to play solitaire. Mm -hmm. So... TNA or Impact Wrestling was rebranded again recently to now it's Jeff Jarrett's Global Force Wrestling name, um, and the, the question was raised to me: Couldn't Anthem have just saved themselves like twelve million dollars in debt? Because so if TNA comes comes to you with twelve million dollars of debt. Maybe they in January, instead of buying TNA, they could have just bought bought out Jeff Jarrett and then not inherited all that debt. Does that make but sense? But
0: they wouldn't. But wouldn't. In your scenario, does TNA die and then they re-sign all those people, or how do they get the talent?
1: I guess TNA, TNA was going to go out of business, right? If, if Anthem didn't buy them, what happens? Hard to say. <laughs> it just dies? I don't
0: know. I mean, I, I, I feel like... And how do they the, get on also, Pop TV? Well, that's my, the other part. Is like I don't think GFW necessarily gets the time slot, yeah. you know? Uh, and and more than anything, as we all know, the value in the companies essentially they have this UK deal, they have this India deal, and they they make some money supposedly from those two deals. And those deals I definitely don't see happening if uh, uh, GFW is is the name that's going back and trying to renegotiate it. I think you know they have signed deals with these companies that probably have some buyer's remorse at this
1: point. But they have a and, pilot. They have this great pilot from, like, two years ago.
0: Yeah, with uh, I think with Mr. Josh Barnett on... No, oh, no, no. Chael Sonnen, right? On commentary? I, th- I think so. He comes out and does
1: some sort of angle, too, I think.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is all what I hope with the Fuji Vice clips and the... Um, uh, the they, they just put up that lost WCW Lucha taping. You know, they put some matches in up from that on one of the unaired classics on the network. So, five oh. years from now, hopefully we'll be seeing all this stuff all those lost pilots, all those lost yeah. uh, shows when uh, WWE finally buys all those
1: libraries. Whenever everyone eventually sells out their video library to WWE. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And uh, we'll see. It's,
1: I I agree with you, yes. They, they.
0: It seems strange to pay for GFW. It seems strange to yeah. um, do it all. Obviously, I think what you're really buying is the management services of Jeff Jarrett.
1: But they already it's had that. Really,
0: they already had that. But did they have the, the, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, again, I think there's always some kind of back office know-how or deal or something that you're buying. But uh, on the flip side, maybe you're just being bamboozled. It's hard to say. Or on the flip side, maybe this is that Ponzi scheme I was talking about. And uh, uh, a hypothetical Ponzi scheme. Is 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 that
1: Ponzi Ponzi scheme called Global Forest Gold? Mm
0: -hmm. All I know is that my favorite show on television is American Greed, and uh, if they do one on GFW, it'll be amazing. What I love is I was going through, again, old lawsuits, uh, the Conan lawsuit against TNA, where he, he literally accuses Jeff Jarrett and everyone else of doing cocaine in the middle of his lawsuit in the deposition. <laughs> He's just like, they're high on cocaine all the time. Everybody knows it. And um, uh, well, Wasn't there an
1: incident where, where Jeff Jarrett was found with a crack pipe in an airport or something?
0: There is a rumor of an incident where he was arrested at an airport with a crack pipe. An alleged alleged rumor. An alleged rumor, and I I recall it, and again, I never saw any records of it, so right now the the Alberto Del Rio versus Page feud is uh, far more um, uh, documented than the uh, the
1: Jeff Jarrett crack pipe story, so that's all I can say on that. Which the the Alberto Del Rio uh, and, and Page story may or may not have. And have uh, cocaine as one of its uh, feature elements. Oh, my Lord. I mean, I told my wife all this. Like,
0: I, I broke it very kind of in pieces where I was like, well, you know, this happened at the airport. And, you know, he was arrested uh, for uh, getting in a fight in, in uh, Europe. And then uh, he, was actually he arrest- got in when, in when was that?
1: He was arrested in when Europe? He got
0: in a fight. He and his brother were at oh, a, um, okay. in Austria. Right. And then right. they got arrested and they talked about taking he- the police station. Then they got in another fight at the That's like six months
1: station. ago. Yeah. Okay, yeah.
0: Gotcha. And then, uh, he claimed he got stabbed, he beat up the one luchador in Mexico, one of the, uh, the, the
1: Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles.
0: Yeah, he, uh, obviously got into, like, other incidents in, uh, other places.
1: when they were the still family. in WWE, like, in, like, last, like, a year ago, there was some sort of incident in Las Vegas where, like, Paige was detained and the police talked to her or something, yeah, nobody really knows. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, where she went, like, she was out on the street and all that, yeah, yeah I remember that. Yeah. So I was just going through it all, and he was, and my wife was just like... You do see all these signs, right? You know how this story ends. Yeah. And it's like, you know, a lot of warning signs. There's yeah. certainly a lot of warning signs. And it's, it's tough because, you know, I can see why as entertainers in the, the public eye, they don't want to take advice from anyone because, you know, nobody knows those people. We know they're, they're the elements of them that we've seen broadcast through the media. Right. But at the same time, we also know statistics and information about you know the 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 risk patterns that someone shows before something terrible happens right and and, and,
1: and, and now we kind of know the page is covering for him now because she she made this long tweet note or, or whatever it was, and and then the audio came out that pretty clearly contradicted what she was saying.
0: yeah, and it's it's just scary because it's like you do find you know when you look at all this stuff, You go back, you're like, wow, there was this whole bunch of things where, you know, domestic violence allegations against this wrestler, and then he killed his wife. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, that was out there, and people weren't talking about it or seeing it. That's Chris Benoit, you know. Yeah, so it's just, it's it's there, and, and, you know, I don't know what difference it makes me talking about it on a podcast is beyond to say... Uh, there's a lot of warning signs, and you'd have to be a fool not to put two and two together to say these are the kind of things that they talk about when they look at the statistics on these events. Yeah. So, um, speaking of statistics, speaking of, of filings, let me tell you about a project I'm doing right now. So, uh, myself and David Bixen's band are trying to go out and get some of these lawsuits that have not been digitized, Um, that are are kind of from what we call the pre-PACER era. PACER is the government service that allows you to access court records. And the challenge with PACER is not only is it $0.10 a record and sometimes more, um, but before, like 1999, you get very little records. You know, in the 2000s onwards, it's better. It's not always 100%, but it's better. Um, But before 2000, it's very spotty at best. And it's court by court, state by state. It's very different. And so we're going out there and we're looking at some of these professional wrestling-related lawsuits that are especially, you know, 20, 30 years old, where the records are being destroyed, they're being lost, they're being, um, they're hitting the statute of limitations for how long records have to be kept, and they're just being, you know, basically lost to the system. And uh, it's been interesting to go to them and say, Hey, do you have this record? Do you have this one? And some of these old lawsuits have incredible information on it. So I'll give you an example. We just got um, a filing from Mid South versus World Class. It was cal- called Southwest Sports Incorporated versus Mid South Incorporated, and then later versus all the individual people. Uh, in Mid-South from a 19 – I think it was 1986 where there was kind of a big raid where a whole bunch of people went from Dallas all the way to Mid-South. And so the Missing Link, One Man Gang, John Tatum, uh, Terry Gordy, Michael Hayes, Buddy Roberts, Missy Hyatt, all kind of jumped ship. And there was a lawsuit over this. And when we got the files, which cost us a a pretty penny, uh, it had the contracts of these wrestlers. It had financial statements for, you know, how Oklahoma and Tulsa and other places were doing. Uh, And so it was really interesting stuff. And uh, it costs some money to get these documents because a lot of times they'll charge us a dollar a page, not even just 10 cents a page, plus filing fees, plus staple removal fees, plus research fees, plus copying fees. Um, and so we're basically trying to raise money so that we can get these lawsuits, we can get them digitized, we can get them organized, and eventually release them into the public domain. Um, that's that's still a big goal for me is to – it's not just about hoarding information and getting it, but then also putting it out there. And so if people are interested in kind of supporting this project, we're putting it all in kind of a drive where I'm, I'm combining all the, the lawsuits and the information that I've gathered over the years – Putting them on this drive, and some of this information we put out there, some of it we've never put out there, um, of just documents we've collected. And the idea is that you know, you for a nominal fee, about thirty bucks, so that's about five bucks a month, uh, you'd get access to this drive, and you can come and look at all these documents, and and that money goes directly into us going out and requesting these big lawsuits. So when I talk about the the Bill Eady, Randy Colley lawsuit, where they you know try to depose a Sergeant Slaughter, and they try to try to dis- pose all these people under their their wrestling names uh, we would go out to Boston and try to get that record uh, just the way we were just able to get these records from Dallas so it's pretty exciting stuff um, and you know when you never know what you're gonna get is the only challenge with it is that uh, I think we hit the jackpot on this last one and so by the law of averages I kind of expect uh, the next ones to be kind of dull. But uh, I think it's really interesting stuff. I think it's really exciting. And uh, some of the stuff's free, you know, finding those Secretary of State filings from Ohio with the financial information of WCW and WWE and the Articles of Incorporation for Georgia Championship Wrestling. You know, that stuff's free. It's out there, but it's hard to find. And it takes time and it takes effort, and it's a way of supporting that. But moreover, we'd put the money towards all those those court fees, and that's really what it's for. So it's, it's a posterity. It's a research thing. It's a, a we-appreciate-what-you're-doing thing. Um, more than it is a, it's not a money making venture by any means. You know, I just paid my pacer fee, and uh, it was more than two hundred dollars. Wow. I'm not going to lie. Wow. Yeah, that's how much I, I spent in the last uh, quarter on pacer fees, and it was a, it was an ex- excessive amount, more than I would normally want to spend. And for a while there, I used my improv business to kind of subsidize that. <laughs> so it's two hundred dollars that I spent out of my own dollar, my own pocket. I don't is, I don't ask people to to subsidize those things. Is there a um, city. But this is,
1: is there a city that someone could go to or, or maybe someone listening already lives in where they could, because they're in that city, they're in a, in a, in a good position to go to a courthouse or something and, and, and make copies themselves, which would save a lot of money?
0: Yes and no. Uh, you're still paying for copies because uh, when, you, when you make the copies, you have to pay for the court copier because you usually can't take the records out of wherever you are.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, there's oftentimes a research fee if you go and request the records. Um, so, yeah, there are, there are going to be some savings, but then eventually they also have to get scanned, and that's sometimes the hardest part for people is, you know, how do I get these scanned? How do I get them to you guys? Um, Just take a picture with your phone. Yeah. There's an app for I, that. Well, yeah, you get decent copies then. I mean, I got to say, the quality of the copies we got from Dallas were fantastic. Um, Bix would be a better answer for that. I, I have a, um, on my Indeed Wrestling uh, Blogspot.com, spot, blog So the russellnomics.com website, I have this uh, story I did two years ago called Recap, and I put down probably 80 cases that are out there, and they're all over the U.S. You know, some are in New York, some are in Boston, some are in Dallas. Sometimes they're in more than one place because you know they might have been multi-jurisdictional. Uh, so I'm not sure where some of these uh, records are sitting. Obviously, some a lot of them are going to sit in Stanford. Uh, because that's where, you know, WWE is And that's where they get everything moved to um, But the older stuff, you know The older stuff seems to be sitting in New York and other places And uh, you only know what you know And uh, some of these lawsuits, you know It's, it's based on which uh, federation we're looking at So if it's AWA, of course it's going to be here in Minnesota If it's, if it's Georgia, it's going to be in stuff in Georgia If it's Florida, it's in Florida If it's world class, it's in Texas and Dallas uh, If it's Mid-South, it's in Louisiana So it's different places, uh, uh, Chicago, you know, and so I'm not sure. That's a great question. I think people can certainly contact me and let me know, and uh, I'm always looking for it. I am asking for financial support because it, it really goes towards paying for this latest lawsuit probably cost us almost 100 bucks which is an absurd amount of money for one lawsuit and number of documents we got. But we're doing this out of love and interest. And if you're a historian or a preservationist or an archivist or just a a curious person, I think you'll get a lot out of it looking at all these documents. And I I think the feedback you can give also helps us find more stuff. You know, I was tweeting all day last night about uh, all the weird thesis that people have written oh, about, yeah. about wrestling, and some of them are really interesting stuff. And, you know, you could, you could do a hundred of those articles, and you can do a whole podcast on that. Somebody was just talking to me about doing one on that. Oh, oh, really? The challenge is I just don't have time to read all those theses and, and think about it. So for me, I get into the legal stuff. I really find it fascinating, and I'm, I love the fact that I can keep finding. I found a new contract yesterday of a guy named uh, Markle Davis. And he was a, so was a power plant trainee. Right? Power plant trainee, yeah. yeah. He and this other guy who is uh, from Laos, whose name I could never even pronounce—it's super long. Um, they both kind of like signed up, and they got like a little bit of ways in the process, and then they immediately got fired. And so they were part of the WCW discrimination suit. But they're kind of interesting because they—they weren't black; they were Asian and they were basically also allegating that there was a whole bunch of white wrestlers that basically got promoted over them and that Terry Taylor is a bigot and all this other stuff. So it was really interesting stuff, but I found his contract. I'd never seen his his independent contractor, and so it it gives you an idea of what it looks like for a WCW trainee in 1999. And, you know, for some of these lawsuits that are coming out, I know they're using these materials, so there's that. But at at the same time, I think it's really interesting to see how the business of professional wrestling has changed. And so now getting copies of 1986 documents, of what a wrestling contract looked like then. I think that's really powerful stuff, and uh, I think it's intriguing because you know now I'm going to have a way to independently verify Jim Cornette's Midnight Express uh, book about what receipt numbers he has versus what
1: receipt numbers that the booker put down that night. There you go. And so this is called Professional Wrestling Legal Research and Preservation Group. Um, do, you ever, do you ever think about coming up with an initialism that spells out gotcha?
0: I I am not part of the Gotcha Media. You're uh, not. <laughs> no, I'm part of the I'm part of the Hadja Media. What does that stand uh, for? What does that mean? Just, that that just I've been doing this for years and no one paid attention. So <laughs> you're you, you part of the. I'll I'll still work for you WWE Media. I don't even. You know. Uh, I I, don't, I try to be fair. I try yeah. to be fair and balanced. Uh, and I think I think even just understanding what do people sue over, what do they not sue over, it helps you understand. Uh, What rights do people have and what rights don't people have and what is fair and what's not fair? You know, like there's this crazy lawsuit in there by a guy named uh, Brian Jack, Brian P. Jack, and he's from Wisconsin and he was a trainee at at, uh, FCW and he claims he got hurt when the ring broke. And he basically goes off on Steve Kern and NXT and Dusty Rhodes and pretty much everyone else under the sun in this lawsuit saying that, you know, they hazed him and they they broke him. And he goes as far as basically saying that when he goes to meet Dr. James Andrews, Dr. James Andrews pats him down for a wire because he's convinced that he's taping these conversations and that he doesn't know who he is. And so it's pretty clear that this guy is... um, taking documents and filing them with his own language because it's they don't make any sense. They're mm-hmm. largely incoherent. But it's also really interesting because you're always like, there's some kernel of truth in there somewhere about what happened to him in this experience. And at the same time, there's a lot of garbage about what people think other people know, and it's absurd. But it's a really interesting view of saying, you know, what is it like for a guy who's never... Who who is an independent wrestler who gets a job down at FCW and what was that trip like for him and what is Tough Enough like for him and oh, oh here's the uh, thing from the WWE PR person telling him to take down Facebook posts because ah. he's revealing you know that he's going to get go to Tough Enough training or something so it's it, this, this, know, is this, all, just, this is all this is pre performance center uh, yeah I think it was FCW okay. is where all this stuff happened to him uh, he basically moved back to Wisconsin and then tried to sue them and essentially the suit I believe never went through. Is that the judge basically said you, you you're making no sense and you you can't really prove any of these
1: claims? Um, I guess there wasn't a legal writing class uh, offered in W. Developmental.
0: It looks like you know he might have like, found one of these, like, do-it-yourself web uh, legal services and basically tried to fill it out himself because the filing literally in the middle of it will just be like, Dr. James Andrews should know who I am. My college roommate's friend used to work with his best friend's (laughs) trainer over at the Seahawks. Like, it just will go off like that in the middle of a sentence. And it's like, oh, this is someone who is not doing well. Hmm. But at the same time, he's injured and is trying to get some point across here about why he feels he's been very wronged. And so there's, I have suits like that that are out there on this drive that I think some people may never have seen and, and might find really interesting. So, again, if you're interested, contact me on Twitter at Mukigana or email me at, or not at, but Chris dot Harrington at gmail.com. I'll get back to you and um, I, I hope you'll support the project. You know, we've had a few people already sign up to do it. And uh, uh, if, if $5 a month works better for you, we can bill you $5 a month. It's really more about let's get some cash out there so that we can just get moving on all these uh, lawsuits because you never know how long it's going to take for the wheels of justice to go. Uh, especially when it comes to like freedom of information requests or court copying. Sometimes it's a day. The New York one I did went on for almost a year and before I got results, and since then I've filed like two more, and I've never heard back from them. So, so how
1: how, you, how can people actually contribute? Is there a, a PayPal account or a Patreon? Yeah,
0: when once they contact me, I'll give them the information that basically is going to be: I'll send you a PayPal invoice. When you pay your invoice, I give you access to the drive. And the idea is for six months you have access to the drive, and then in six months from now, let's see where we are with all this project, and you know try to make this keep going forward. I would love, you know, what I'm really asking for people is let's let's put let's pool our money so that we have a bunch of money we can spend to like get all these court cases and in exchange here's something i'm trying to give you that i hope you'll find a value so i'm putting up things up there like my old wrestlenomics files where i had results from like 32 feds i'm putting up all the wrestler contracts i found all the pro wrestling lawsuits i found and some of the stuff is out on the web for free and some of the stuff has never been seen before so
1: it's it's a combination you've got trendy schedules in there too just like this is w corporate stuff
0: I did put a couple of the trending schedules in there, yeah.
1: yeah I mean, to- and mean, that, that stuff we could put in, too, because, like, once, once a trending schedule, once a version of it or a version of the KPIs goes away from the, the corporate website, there's um, besides, like, going through Web Archive, which is where I've gotten a lot of them, like, they're not on the, on the corporate website natively anymore. So, like, we, I have a lot of that stuff, and I think you do, too, but if you don't, I can, I can give that stuff to you as well. Exactly. That's the key. Is it's like it, it, a lot of this stuff is out there,
0: but I'll tell you, it's going to take you a long time to find it because it took me yeah. a long time to find it. And so I'm offering a big archive for people that enjoy reading this kind of stuff, an opportunity to read it. Uh, but I'm I'm not trying to say that I'm selling you this. I, I'm really just selling you access because it's meant to go towards a larger goal for us. So I hope it works out great, and I hope a lot of people have fun
1: with it. Yeah, and, and I think like this is where really good work is done in in wrestling media. And a a lot of wrestling media is just, you know, sort of so-and-so skimming from so-and-so. And and, and a lot of this is historians' work as well, not so much news reporting. But, you know, I think this is where, you know, wrestling media can really do a better job in, in, in looking at real files and real documents.
0: Absolutely. And just, you know, holding people accountable to say, okay, well, there's a filing as of 1987 that said they made this much in Tulsa. And this is how they broke that out in terms of the costs and the pays and whatnot. And so it can also help us a lot when we're trying to um, estimate financials for the history. So if someone says, how valuable was Mid-South? You know, I can do some calculations to say, well, this is how much I know they made. This is how much they paid. This is how much they did this and that. And uh, it also helps us triangulate something. Like when I get a WWF number from 1987, how can I see if that's right or wrong, you know, well, one way is if I can compare it to something else at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's fun, you know. I think there's other people have been doing some really good work out there about, you know, kind of trying to collect all the wrestling observer newsletters and get them all digitized. There's people that have done that for Matt Watch. There's people that do that, you know. Obviously, all the old Dragon King newsletters and and all these other, you know, kind of historical media about what was happening at the time. What's great now is that we have all those articles archived of what happened from 2000 onwards. But from 1980 through 1999, it's really spotty, and there's some fascinating stuff in there. And the closer you get to a legal document, that's what we call a
1: primary source, you know, because that's something where someone was trying to testify to it in court. Mm -hmm. And and time is of the essence here, too, right? Because as time goes on, more and more of this stuff is going to be discarded or whatever without being, you know, recovered by a wrestling historian. I think think there's a, a Nick Lewis lawsuit